Welcome to episode 55 of Central Intelligence Cinema. Today, Jason and I will be reviewing the 1987 spy movie, No Way Out, starring Kevin Costner and Gene Hackman. But without further ado, kick out the jams, Mr. Brosnan. Beg your pardon, forgot to knock. Welcome to the CIC, initiating security clearance. My name is Napoleon Solo. Bond. James Bond. Natasha Romanoff. Ethan Hunt. Felix Leiter. Elsa Faust. Identity confirmed. Now, pay attention, 007. Welcome to Central Intelligence Cinema, a podcast dedicated to spy movies and secret agent pop culture. Your mission, should you decide to accept it. Do you expect me to talk? I'm in the middle of an interrogation. This moron is giving me everything. Yeah, baby! Special agent, you're not having a very special day, are you? But remember, nothing ever goes according to plan. Tom, what do you think you're doing? the British hand up, sir. The state will self-destruct in five seconds. Recording from an undisclosed location where I guarantee there is no 80 synth music anywhere, <laughs> it's a Central Intelligence Cinema Podcast. I'm Jason Greenberg, and with me, as always, Ben Esslinger. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Jason. And welcome back to the CIC, the spy movie podcast that will be hiding inside an air duct that no one will find us in. No one. <laughs> no one, because they just won't bother to check. Do you know what the problem with getting into a one-way air duct is? What's that? There's no way out. There's no... <laughs> very good. That was excellent. But uh, yes, very happy to be back here in the uh, good old undisclosed location in the flesh. In the flesh. Indeed, indeed. And uh, we're going back to the 80s. First of all, we're not on any road. We're on no roads. Thank God. <laughs> I'm, I'm, the, walking that road was hard. Hard. It was a it was a long hard road, and we're out of there. Thank God. And we are now floating somewhere. <laughs> well, I feel like maybe we pulled off to the side. There was a nice scenic view. Perhaps there was a lake at the bottom of a hill, and we're yeah. just walking over to the lake. Or yeah. Maybe we ended up somewhere where there's a bunch of big stone monuments and a lot of politicians. Indeed, I don't know. It could be. Could be. And we're headed back to the. To the 1980s. Ah. Yeah, buddy. Where the uh, the cocaine flowed and... Uh, <laughs> and so did Sean Young's hair. <laughs> indeed, indeed. But yes, today we are here to review No Way Out, the 1987 spy movie with Mr. Costner and uh, Sean Young and oh, yeah, yeah, Gene yeah. Hackman. Yeah. Very exciting. Kind of like Kevin Costner's really big breakout role. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he'd done stuff before, but uh, this was one where I think kind of cemented his place as, as leading lead, man. Leading man, yeah. All right, well, should we get into it? Yes. They needed a hero. I understand he has a background in intelligence. Get him here. He liked excitement. Take us somewhere. He wanted her. Their passion upset the balance of power. What's all this top secret business I've been hearing about over the Pentagon? Behind the cover-up. Try and understand the power. The important thing is to abort an investigation before it ever gets to you. The loyalty. I love you. I promise I'll work everything out. How did you actually meet the Secretary of Defense? I need a car. It's an emergency. They mean to kill me, Sam. Because of the truth, there's no way out. Kevin Costner, Gene Hackman, Sean Young, Will Patton, no way out. 
Okay, No Way Out, released in 1987, directed by Roger Donaldson, who has done Dante's Peak, The November Man, The Recruit, Species, and Cocktail. Kind of of a weird uh, resume there of movies, right? very diverse. It's quite interesting, actually. I feel like it's like, we just need somebody who's not a big name but can direct anything. Yeah. Hey, let's get Donaldson. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Sounds great. Uh, It should be noted also that uh, producer Laura Ziskin produced this, which probably helps make this movie as good as it is. Yes. Um, because she's produced tons of big movies. She did the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies. She did Pretty Woman, As Good As It Gets. So she's a producer who knows how to, well, produce. So, <laughs> and then also Robert Garland has a producer credit on this movie as well. And speaking of writing, this is based on the novel The Big Clock by Kenneth Fearing, who died in 1961. He had written some old TV suspense stuff as well. But yeah, the main story is based off of his novel. And then Robert Garland is credited with the screen adaptation, which is interesting. He has done a lot of adaptations for a lot of different things. Again, this is another, this is definitely one of those movies where they just brought in guys who could kind of do everything sure because you know he adapted the electric horseman he adapted tootsie sanford and son twilight zone the movie so a lot of jack of all trades making this movie sure. you know it's interesting uh i guess i hadn't realized this but the fact that the author of the book died in 61 meant that this book had to have been written somewhere in the 50s most yeah. likely or 40s probably the 50s with the spy angle on it so you have to think, what would this movie have been like if you probably said it in the period that, yeah. that it was written for? Not that it doesn't work where it is. I think this story is kind of universal across yeah. the board. But I'm, I'm looking at that, I'm like, I, I start thinking, like, what if we put James Bond back in the 50s? What if we put this movie uh, in the yeah. 50s, right? You know? Yeah. I mean, well, and the other thing, too, is I bet it would have been considered far more scandalous. Oh, yeah. When this book first came out versus in the 80s, we're all so cynical at that point that it's just like, well, yeah, it's a politician. He had a mistress, of course. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a, a hooker dies. What a, what a shock. Well, well and, and being an 80s movie, when I'm watching this with my wife, she's like, there's a lot of tits in this movie. I'm like, it was made in 1987. There were tits in Disney movies, I think. <laughs> it was like a law. Cocaine or boobs. And Disney's like, well, boobs are natural. When you want to teach the kids to get on the cocaine. That's right. <laughs> Leave that out of there. No, no. Photography-wise, uh, cinematography was by John Alcott, who was uh, kind of Stanley Kubrick's guy. Yeah. Uh, he did 2001, A Clockwork Orange, uh, Barry Lyndon, and The Shining. Mm-hmm. So he knows his stuff, yeah, for he, sure. Yeah, he, he doesn't suck at his job. I almost feel like he was overqualified for this particular movie. Well, and did you know that at the very end during the credits, right before the credit end credits rolled, there was a memoriam for him on there. I believe oh. this was his last film. Really? I yeah. didn't catch that. Oh, wow. So it may have just sort of been a... Let's give this one to John. He's not doing well, kind yeah, of thing. And yeah, you know, and it's it, a slam dunk. I mean, he, it's all in close quarters, right? But the, the the very first shot of the movie is an amazing shot. So it's pretty well. They, I mean, for that for that era, yeah, yeah. So I mean, they let him have his chops. They give him a lot of long hallways to shoot. Right. We know we know he knows how to shoot a long hallway. <laughs> Lord, yes. So <laughs> indeed, I think it's like a thing he has with long hallways. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Editing-wise, William Hoy and uh, Neil Travis, who I believe are like editing partners because they're credited with almost the exact same movies. They did Patriot Games, Star Trek IV, Dances with Wolves, The Batman. So they did a recent one as well. So yeah, I felt like the editing in this movie was so efficient. And maybe it's a product of being in the 80s and it's like, we got to cram this thing down into two hours. We can't, you know, we're we're not into the 2000s where... 
they encourage two and a half to three hour long right. movies. You know, they they really had to kind of cram this sucker down because there are no everything is a hard cut to something else. Yep. But I will say it's done really, really well. Right. They're really good at finding, you know, a close up or a door opening or something else. Like it's all it doesn't feel like the edit saved the picture. Right. But it's all also edited really efficiently. Right. Well, and I, I suspect that a lot of that also had to do with the fact that it's a suspense film. Yeah. And it, this is a kind of movie that because of the, well, there aren't so much subplots, but because of everything that's going on, mm-hmm. that it could drag out in exposition all day long. And I felt like we need to keep all this information in, but we need to keep the movie going so people stay involved and actively give a shit about what's happening. Well, I can guarantee that if this same movie was made now, it would be another half an hour to 45 Easily. minutes. Easily, because movies being made now, they would have hit you over the head with all these little plot details. You know, whereas if you're not paying attention in this movie, you are lost. Oh, yeah. Because oh, yeah. it moves, moves, moves. Again, I was I was narrating some of this movie to my wife. We're watching, who are these guys again? Well, that's Quato. He's got a big, like, <laughs> little tiny, little ugly guy in the middle. And the guy next to him, I think, played a Romulan on Star Trek. Anyway, they're bad guys. They're like you know Sandinista people. Uh, you know they're just they're just they're just they're just bad mamma jammas, and they clearly want to kill Dances of Wolves guy. So, but it was funny. She was like, "What are these guys again?" I'm like, "Okay, Sean Young is <laughs> right." This exactly. was this was after the the Manila scene. You know, it's like there are a lot of boobs. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Why do you think I watched this movie so much when I was a kid? <laughs> By the numbers, the budget for this movie was only $15 million. I mean, granted, that was 1987, but still, $15 million yep. is very humble. And the movie made $35.5 million worldwide, so not amazing, but it did all right. I mean, it doubled. It basically yeah. paid for itself. Yeah. You got to wonder how much of that $15 million was Gene Hackman's fee. Oh, yeah. Right? Probably it half wasn't, of it. It wasn't Costner's, I can tell you that. No. Not, not <laughs> they then. Got, they got him on the cheap. That was like probably like first... Uh, era Mark Hamill money. <laughs> right, right, right. Right. So if I sign this contract, I get to do two more movies, but uh, I won't have a career afterwards except in voice acting? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, boy. Here we go. Jason, we got to talk about it. <laughs> the music. The music. <laughs> the music in this movie was done by Maurice Jarre who is a legend. He has done Lawrence of Arabia, Dr. Zhivago, and Witness, just to name a couple. But good God, this thing is awful. Well, and you know, Witness <laughs> is kind of synthy too. Yeah. But not like this. This is awful. Oh, my God. I just, there were so many moments, not many moments, but there were at least two in particular that I, as I'm watching the movie, thinking this would be so much better with a different, soundtrack if they just <laughs> came up with something entirely different if they, if they took the soundtrack and used normal instruments instead of all the yeah. synth it would have been fine oh uh, yeah yeah it was a very spy sounding soundtrack but it well, just it just it sounded like a, it sounded like a tron spy movie is what it sounded like right <laughs> it was so it was just oh it took me out of the movie a couple times it really thank god there isn't a lot of it. No, there's only a couple times when it's so bad that it literally took me out. But most of the time, when he does use the synths, it's usually just like a droney mm-hmm. yeah. proto uh, Zimmerman. Yes, as it yes, were. yes. And you can kind of just push it out of your mind as right. you're and as you're paying attention <laughs> to the details of the movie. <laughs> well, you know, and then there, those two ridiculous songs. Oh my god. 
I mean, just the so no way out bad. Song. Did you know that Michael McDonald wrote? Oh, co-wrote that song. I believe he. It sounds like a Michael McDonald. Maybe they should let him sing it. It's Paul Anka and Michael McDonald. He oh. it would have been so much better if Michael McDonald would have yeah. sang it. Yeah, but it had to be a female because of the scene that it was in. I'm sure. Oh, but, yeah. No way. <laughs> that would have been fantastic. I'd have been okay with that. Literally, as they're having sex. Right. Literally. Right. <laughs> no way out. By the way, uh-huh. you're literally hearing the lyrics. No way out. As <laughs> I mean, she seemed willing enough. <laughs> That's so true. maybe there's no That's context true. there. That, yeah. Well, okay. Everything seems very uh, participatory. Seems very above board. Yes. Yes. I don't think we're having any. Pro- I mean, she did walk naked into her friend's apartment, so I'm pretty sure she she was okay with everything that happened. <laughs> right. Yeah. But I don't know. I just I kept thinking if she's fumbling with his pants. Yeah, there's definitely no way out. Poor Kevin. <laughs> Poor Kevin. You're stuck with her, buddy. Sorry, man. And speaking of uh, the uh, characters in this movie, of course, we've got uh, Lieutenant Commander Tom Farrell, a.k.a. uh, Yuri. Spoiler. Spoiler. Uh, Played by Kevin Costner, who is so young in this movie, he almost looks like Anthony Edwards. Yeah. It's it's (laughs) disturbing. Yeah. It's like, wow. Did you guys... like I don't know. Cousins or... I mean, I freely admit, I would get them confused... Back when I was a teenager. You <laughs> oh, know, really? The whole sort of like, uh, what was it, uh, Marty Feldman, uh, Artie Johnson kind of <laughs> conundrum. <laughs> but it's like, oh, wait, no, that was the guy that was in Revenge of the Nerds. Right, right. <laughs> that guy died in Top Gun. That guy died in The Big Chill and you didn't even get to see him. <laughs> and then, of course, we've got the legend, Gene Hackman, playing Secretary of Defense, David Bryce. Who, between him and Will Patton, make this movie. Oh, yeah. I mean, not that Costner did the most subtle acting I think I've ever seen him do in anything. Yeah. I mean, his Costner he, is great in this movie. And he, I'm usually not a big Kevin Costner fan. No, no, but, no. He totally comes off like he is a naval officer. Some of the little things, he, the very little dismissive things he does, like with the ensign that's yeah. in, the, in the, the CIC center out there and everything, he just like. This is what a naval officer does. Okay. He must like he watched naval people for three months. Right. And said, okay, well, this is kind of, they have sort of a casual dismissiveness to lower. Sure. And, just, and I've, I've watched probably every Kevin Costner movie that came out up until the mid 90s. Right. Most of his stuff tends to get a little now, a little bit more, I don't even know what you're talking about <laughs> kind of acting. And all of his stuff was very down to earth and reserved. Like he was just a guy yeah. caught in the middle of something. I'm like, Holy shit, remember when Kevin Costner could act? Right? <laughs> this is amazing. Yeah, yeah. But Gene Hackman, man, he just crushes it. Oh, I mean, he crushes everything. It's Gene Hackman. Exactly. Like, he plays it so perfectly because he's not, you're mildly sympathetic to him because that's what you're supposed to be, at least towards the end, because he starts seeing that he shouldn't be leaving himself in this predicament, he should just turn his ass in. Right. And you're also sympathetic at the beginning to him because you can tell he's the type of Secretary of Defense that maybe actually wants to, like, make things better and isn't just a pure bureaucratic... Right. I, you ...jerk know. That, that's, that's <laughs> you know, looking out for his own interests. Yeah. But then he also plays just enough of a dickhead... That's the to, thing. You know. He's definitely somebody who's got a lot of power and is happy about the power that he has. Yeah. Oh, very the much The interactions so. that he has with Will Patton's character, with Pritchett in particular, you kind of get that whole feeling of, uh, of you know, ha I am the king and you are my loyal vassal and verily thou shalt do what I tell you to do. Yes, yes. He definitely kind of gets off on the power play. I mean. He's playing in, an excellent politician. Yes. 
Because yes. somebody told him, you need to play a politician who thinks he's the king daddy of the world. Oh, I can do that. No problem. No problem. <laughs> yeah. I got gotcha. you. And then we have uh, Susan Atwell, the mistress, played by uh, Sean Young. <laughs> She's not a replicant in this one, folks. Not a replicant. Maybe She's not. a replicant, not a replicant. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not her best performance. But at the same time, there are moments where I find her extremely likable. Like when they're at the bar, she's like trash talking all the bureaucrats and all the government people in the room. You're not one of those, are you? Right. Well, I think there was definitely, they had a good chemistry. Yeah. And where she shines the most is the scenes where she's trying to act that she's in love with Kevin Costner. Yeah. They're a little, they get very close to kind of, but. It's a little too sweet towards the later end of that love story. But But I like the little scene where she got, she does the whole little can-can dance thing with her skirt, and then she comes <laughs> down and starts pouting just like him. Right. You know, I mean, some of it was maybe a little bit of her reputed Sean Young crazy. Well, I mean, but to it me, worked. it was almost familiar. Right. <laughs> There's a couple moments like that one that you specifically called out. I was like, I've seen women do that before. <laughs> I, I have too, but never on screen. Never on screen. And never with a level of menace in their eyeballs behind it. But that's just Sean Young. <laughs> yeah. I just say so. I mean, she was playing a part, didn't have a whole lot to do. Right. Right. Unfortunately, she is just kind of this tragic character and she doesn't really have any governorship over. No, because her, her whole point in this movie. Is to show her boobs and die. Yeah. I mean, that's literally it. Yeah. Right. I think she had more to do in Stripes than she did in this movie, actually. But she also, that sort of crazed sense of, I'm in love with this guy, but I'm stuck with this other guy because this other guy is giving me what I want. Right. Whereas this guy has everything <laughs> that I want to have. And, right. And a Porsche and. <laughs> right. So, I mean, yeah, I've seen her do other things that were better, but. Honestly, how hard is it to play a robot? Not very. <laughs> right. Um, so, yeah, it could have been better. Could have been worse. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, Scott Pritchard, the general counsel to Bryce, played by Will Patton. Amazingly by Will Patton. Amazing. Maybe the best thing I've ever seen him do, although I really like him in Remember the Titans. Yes. <laughs> but yes, he plays a, at least what I can only assume is a Coke-fueled, just bureaucrat. So, just- so what I pictured him as being, <laughs> so from Animal House, okay, the, the main bad guy for Delta House, the big, tall, blonde guy, <laughs> I think this is who he grew up to be. Right. You know? Yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> Yeah, he's something else, man. He it's really interesting too the turn that his that he takes cuz he starts out very normal and you just sort of assume he's a, a yeah. halfway decent guy for the most part. I you know, I I, I mean, it, he's but he's good. You're you're right. I can just tell by the way you're wincing cuz he's good at sort of cluing you in that there's some bad shit going on behind his eyes. There has a level of intensity in that and every performance he has in this movie where you know there's something not quite right about this guy. Yeah. Even when they first meet him and Costner waves over to him and by the time he walks over, his hand is still up like, <laughs> I'm still here. Let's shake hands. <laughs> I would die for this man. Kind of thing. Yeah. And yeah, he doesn't get to play the crazy enough, but Will Patton can play the crazy like nobody's business. Yeah. And there is a moment in this movie where he just flips the switch and goes full crazy. Oh, like it yeah. Just, it just feels like suddenly... There's this very specific moment where it's just suddenly like, boom, I am crazy. But it's ramping up there the whole time. Yeah, definitely. But there's some, there's, there's like this moment that just sort of, oh yeah, uh, accelerates everything. Yeah, the switch clicks is like, 
well, this one goes to 11. <laughs> right. And he cranked it up from 9 to 11. Yeah. Boom. Cranked it to 15. Um, <laughs> then we've got, oh, it's not an 80s spy movie without Fred Thompson. Not at all. Playing Senator a, Fred Thompson. Senator Fred Thompson playing CIA Director Marshall, who does actually a very good job in the role. I mean, it's, it's the role that he always yeah. plays. What does he play? He plays... Military generals or admirals, right? right? He plays senators, CIA directors, <laughs> and I think on occasion I may have seen him play some sort of a board member somewhere, right? right? So, and, and so he's got politician down because he does it for a living, right? In fact, I think was doing it for a living while he made this movie. Oh wow! Which maybe that's why he got the role. I mean, he was there. Yeah. Then we've got uh, Sam Hesselman, who is kind of Tom's only real friend in this movie well at least for a little while anyway right uh played by george Dezunda, who does a great job i mean not a whole lot to say there just kind of uh he's uh mil- navy officer's buddy that's that's really <laughs> yeah. yeah somebody to go party yeah. with in manila and then we've got uh three actors that i just want to point out because this is so interesting that they found these people in this particular movie first of all we've got david bowie's wife right. iman playing nina baker and she actually does a pretty good job. Oh, sure. I thought she did really well. Yeah. <laughs> and then I had to bring up the fact, as Jason mentioned earlier, we've got Quato from Total Recall in this movie. Queen. <laughs> Queen. Open your mind. <laughs> Played by Marshall Bell. He is uh, listed as Contra number one in IMDb. He's basically one of the goons. Right. And then... The Are other- you on the death squads? <laughs> that was his most Costner moment in the movie. Right yeah, there, it really the was. And then Contra number two just is some guy who looks like Dracula. Right. And then... <laughs> Run- and runs <laughs> and like Dracula with, uh, I don't know, rickets? That's <laughs> <laughs> so bad. And then uh, we've got a party goer played by Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt, everybody. Brad Pitt is in this movie. I believe it's his first role ever. In a movie. Maybe. Well, it's close. Yeah, if it's not his first, the, it's Thumb pretty close. Thelma Louise wasn't until the, I think 80, the 90, 90? 90? Yeah, yeah. That was his first. Well, wait a minute. When was True Romance? No, that was 90s. That okay. was definitely the So 90s. maybe it was. Yeah. And yeah. But you just see him for a minute in the background behind... Uh, is he behind Costner? He's behind Costner to Costner's right yeah, in the, the scene uh, the where party. the where the Maori dancers are doing their thing. <laughs> you see him fuzzy in the background, and then as Costner's turning to leave, he laughs, and that's how you know it's Brad Pitt because it's the patented Brad Pitt ha <laughs> kind of laugh. <laughs> <laughs> that one. That one. Well, that pretty much covers all the uh, highlights of acting (laughs) in this. uh, Well, I'm sure we'll get to more, but uh, should we uh, jump into this? Absolutely. Okay, so there is no pre-title to this movie. Uh, We just... Does it really need one? No, not really. Because this movie is kind of, at its heart, I think it's less of a spy movie and more of just a... It's just a suspense thriller. It's a suspense thriller, yeah. So we open on a uh, big aerial shot of the White House and the Washington Monument, so you know where you are. In case you were wondering. <laughs> it, is, it is the Eiffel Tower. It is... <laughs> well, and you know, the thing, that, the thing that I appreciated about it the most was you got to kind of... And I, I've been to Washington, D.C. once in my life. I spent three days at the Smithsonian, and I think a day looking at stuff because I kept making my mom take us back to the Smithsonian. <laughs> Did not care about monuments at that point in time. But you really get a weird sort of view of how it's set up. 
And I know how it's set up. I've seen right. maps of Washington, D.C. But as it continues to pull back, you see the Capitol building. You see the Washington Monument. You see the Lincoln Memorial. You see how close everything yeah. is. And how the- close the Pentagon is to all of that. Yeah. And then all the famous highways that right. go to nowhere out there. <laughs> right. It's such a good shot that would, would be like a throwaway shot now. Oh, yeah. Because my first thought just being as spoiled as I am now with current movie making is I'm like, well, that's kind of shaky. Huh? That's the eighties. <laughs> right. But given the era that it, that was done in is extremely well thought out. It's yep. extremely thoughtful about where it starts and where it ends. Right. Well, the thing is, so there had to be a decision process. We want a house that's close enough to the mall. Right. That we can make this shot. Or <laughs> since we're using this house, I have a great idea for a camera shot that we could do with a helicopter. I wouldn't be surprised if that's how it began. It's kind of what I'm thinking, because you would yeah. think that finding a house would be more challenging than setting up something. Yeah. But also, if I that house in that neighborhood was probably pretty ritzy anyway. Well, so if somebody walked on your, knocked on your door from Hollywood, we'd like to use your house in a movie starring Kevin Costner. Who? <laughs> Starring Gene Hackman. Lex Luthor, how much do you need? The French Connection, I love it. Oh my goodness, Popeye Doyle, bring it on. <laughs> you know, honestly, the thing about that shot too is, I just wonder what kind of permits you had to get. Oh, for Washington? Right. No doubt. Over all those monuments? I mean, now it would be almost impossible. It would be impossible to get a helicopter shot. They yeah, might be able to get a drone cleared. Yeah, maybe a drone. But maybe, maybe not. Maybe not, yeah. Not that close to all of that nonsense. Not with all the security now. Right. But I mean, it. Spider-Man had the Washington Monument. It was probably all fake, but they did have it. <laughs> right. <laughs> so then we've got the uh, title graphics. This It's like uh, these like blinds. They kind of look like blinds, but it's very late 80s, early 90s type graphics. Yeah, I think it's graphics. supposed to like evoke sort of like a computery... Computer like aliens kind of feel to it, but very dot matrix uh, yeah, yeah. printing type where you can see the lines behind the picture. Exactly, it was sort of thing. like that, or the flashing cursor, or the words just came up like yeah. they're being typed. That yeah. was kind of that big thing for spy movies in general, right? In the eighties, the only other thing I can think of is how, like, in a lot of these offices in big government buildings, they have blinds so that you can keep something private. So That's maybe. True. So I just kept thinking of blinds as I was seeing that. I was having but. trouble giving any real analysis because of the really <laughs> lousy music. Music is so bad. God, it's so bad. I expect to see a light cycle come flying out in the <laughs> beginning credits. Tron? <laughs> no. Oh, boy. So, yeah, back to the show. So, <laughs> so we get this great shot of the Washington Monument and the White House, and it moves all the way back, and, and you see the Pentagon, you see all this other stuff, and it finally comes down to this house. So we realize that's where we're starting this whole thing. So it's an undisclosed house. I can respect that. Uh, near the Pentagon, where we see uh, Lieutenant Tom Farrell. And he's under interrogation on how he came to meet the Secretary of Defense, Bryce. And essentially, we're starting at the end. We're kind of Tarantinoing mm-hmm. this sucker a little bit. And I actually kind of wonder if this is where David Leach got his idea to start. It's, although there's so many, there's so many spy movies this, that have done the same yeah, thing. Yeah, this is not, this is an old technique when this got done in the 80s. Yeah, so. yeah. So this has been done over and over again. But uh, we got these two guys that are interrogating him. There's this big guy. That's so on edge that he breaks his coffee mug with his hand. And uh, fun fact, in IMDb, he's literally credited as being named Cupbreaker. <laughs> I kind of want to make a theme song for him. Like, Cupbreaker, Cupbreak and Cubs. Cupbreaker. <laughs> <laughs> 
so mad he's breaking cups. <laughs> God damn, he's mad he's breaking cups. <laughs> he's still mad about losing his hair in the 70s. Right. So then Farrell uh, explains he met Bryce through Pritchard, who he met in college. And it's interesting, too, that they, they have the bandage that he receives at the end of the movie. So they keep it very, uh, as far as continuity and all that, because he's still got the bloody bandage. Because this is literally the night or the day after all the shit went down at the end of the movie. Right. So, and then, of course, Pharrell's looking into the mirror because he knows that there's somebody behind the mirror. And he's like, when is he going to come out from behind there? And, of course, that's when we kind of fade into six months earlier. Right. (laughs) Well, and I mean, to be fair, it's a very good use of this conceit. It right? is. Yeah. Because so much of what you're seeing is completely, you don't know what the hell's going on. Right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And it's it's an excellent mislead it from is. MacGuffin at the end. Yes, right? for sure. Because you, know, you don't realize who it is that's right. interrogating him. Even the casting, when you look at the guys, because Cutbreaker doesn't look like he fits what you think he is at the beginning of the movie. So you're like, why is that guy playing that character. Yeah, the hints they give are almost impossible to like allow you to determine what's going to happen. Right. But they're also good enough that when you find get all the picture together, you're like, oh. You're suddenly like, oh, I get it now. Yeah, yeah. Which is why you can never forget the ending of this movie because it's at the beginning of the movie. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we get this uh, rather rudimentary titling telling us it's now six months earlier and this cab rolls up to this party, this big uh, fancy place I think it's an inauguration ball. Yeah. So Costner comes out in full naval uniform. And then right behind him, there's like a fancy limo rolling up. And then we see uh, we see Sean Young in a mink coat. And Farrell walks up behind her, kind of checking her out as they're checking their coats. And a lot of, lot of looky-looky back and forth. Oh, yeah. Hey, I fancy you <laughs> type of stuff going on. And then she drops that little line, lucky this isn't a bullshit detector. None of us would get in where they're putting, uh, giving the metal detector right. wand I like the old everybody. dude behind her is kind of like, wah, wah. <laughs> yeah, he's just like, whatever. Okay, Debbie Downer. Thanks, Dad. Thanks for the dad <laughs> joke, buddy. <laughs> but of course, Farrell laughs, and he's entirely charmed by her already. So Farrell watches her walk off, and then he meets up with Pritchard. And as you said, he's like got his hand up, and he keeps it up as he, right? all the way until he gets there. And Tom, how you doing? <laughs> he's got that sort of weird southerny. Talking with his tongue locked to his palate voice. It's bizarre. It's very creepy. It's like he's trying to do Jodie Foster, (laughs) but as a dude. (laughs) (laughs) So Pritchard immediately just sort of jumps into sort of implying... Like, you're, you want to work with me, right? You want to work with us, right? You know, just sort of assuming already that Pharrell's going to take this job. And Pharrell's like, I, what? Okay, uh, a job? Uh, you know, I just got a Christmas card and an yeah, invite. I just sent you a Christmas card. I believe the message was, Merry Christmas. <laughs> right. And then we see Bryce walk with his wife. And then Pritchard introduces Pharrell to Bryce, who's very impersonal at that point, because he's got no use for him. Right. So... Well, he's at the height of his power. Um, he's at the height of his power. You he know, just got his job again for another four years. Yeah, you know, feeling good. Feeling good. Wants to go uh, just be the king of his particular yeah. cast he sees kingdom. His, he sees his chippy off in the distance. You yeah, know, yeah, 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 exactly. He's, he's got everything he wants. And this, again, Gene Hackman being Gene Hackman. <laughs> I could watch him do a movie with nobody else in it. Yeah. So... He's kind of impersonal, and then he, he walks off, and, and Pritchard kind of apologizes for him, defends him. He's like, he's a genius. I would do anything for him. I would die for that man. Yeah. 
Um, and then and then Farrell sort of says, well, I heard that you're the brains behind the operation. He doesn't really say a whole lot about it. But, right. But it's a nice little hint that Pritchard is quite the individual who is doing some crazy shit. <laughs> well, and that he is strangely and ridiculously devoted to this man that he works for. Strangely devoted and strangely influential, too. He's extreme. He's like the little voice in Bryce's ear. And for whatever reason, Bryce just keeps listening to him. Oh, I have a theory <laughs> oh, really? that I will share with you at the end. All right. All right. See if you stumble onto it yourself. But uh Yeah. I have a theory. <laughs> so then we uh, we get some fanfare. And this is a really clever thing that they do here to speed up time. Where they you get all the fanfare. You realize the president's coming in. You see Farrell and Susan's eyes meet again as the president's walking in. But the very next cut is president's gone already. Right. He's already gone. And we're now off to the festivities and what have you. Right. And we're, we're to the after part now. So Susan is watching Farrell as he walks through the crowd. And she asks this guy for a light who's like really into her. <laughs> like, Did you see the guy in the dress? Of course he was. <laughs> yeah, of course he was. And that's Farrell sort of picks all this up. And he rocks up and gets her a light. You know, she's, she says something snarky to the guy, to the other guy. Well, and so here's my thing. She did that on purpose. She knew that if she asked the guy for a light, that Tom would see what was happening right. and walk over. So the whole thing about, you want to look down my dress, she intentionally did that to make it look like she could be like, and not from you. Right. I want handsome Anthony Edwards lookalike. <laughs> exactly. So this is a really funny interaction, too, where he gives her the light, and then he's like, you're very impressed with me. It almost it's almost anchorman quality. Right. Where he's like, I'm kind of a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> I have many leather-bound yeah. books. There, there's and- definitely some big dick energy floating <laughs> around in that scene. <laughs> yeah, very much so. And she's like, No, I'm not. And he's like, Yeah, you are. And then he walks off. Uh-huh. And it's pretty great, actually. It's almost convincing. Almost. So he walks over to the bar, and then we get uh, another little tiny little hint, because Farrell orders a Stoli straight up at a big, can you know? Yeah, but everybody was drinking Stoli in the 80s. There's nothing to infer here. Nothing. Wink, wink, Nudge, wink. nudge. And then Susan comes over and admits, okay, well, I'm impressed. <laughs> You're pretty cute. <laughs> so... So they chit-chat, and Farrell says he's not a politician. She's like, yeah, you probably are, you know, just trying to keep flirting, nudging, nudging, be giving him a hard time. (laughs) And he accuses her of being cynical, and she says, adequate to the occasion, which I actually love. It's a great line. Yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, too, if I'm who Farrell is, and she said all this to me, I'd be like, yeah, I'm going home with this girl. (laughs) Well, he was there to go home with that girl. Yeah. So I did like the line, too, where they quickly let you know who this woman is, too, because he says, do you want to get out of here? And she says, my date will be furious, but his wife will be happy. Right. So you suddenly realize, oh, this chick is like a mistress for high-powered bureaucrats and government people. So, of course, they get out of there. And uh, and then, did you get the, the kind of a diehard vibe here? Like, that was Argyle driving in the front? Right, you know? very I much I, so. It's like, I, I just like, I know. And this just, is Christmas music. Right? <laughs> I'm just like, I don't know why. They're two have nothing similar other than a limousine. Right. But and I the just, driver's completely different. Driver's completely different. There's two people. They're getting it on. Yeah. It's not. And he's a looky loo. Yeah. It's not Bruce Willis and a bear. <laughs> but I immediately just went Die Hard. Yeah. <laughs> so then we're in the uh, the Die Hard car. 
The Die Hard Limo. The Die Hard Limo. And they're driving around and they're doing lots and lots of sexy things while the worst song in the movie plays. No way out. <laughs> like, literally, as we've already covered this. <laughs> it's literally playing as they're having sex. And you literally hear those words. Although, it's so... It's like, like, that's what they're selling you... They're branding the movie as they're having sex. No way. <laughs> right, exactly. And I mean, the whole scene, other than the part that Costner, when he's talking to the driver, right? Right. And I saw on, on the trivia from IMDb that that was ad-libbed. Oh, really? Because the line that was in there, Costner couldn't say it convincingly. So he just, he said, let me try something. Really? Yeah. And... and it worked because it was so much more natural. Yeah. Because I think it was originally he's more angry or something like that. Yeah. It's like, no, he's out there. He's had some drinks. She's had some drinks. Everybody's having fun in the party limo. Right. And what's, your, what's your name? Billy. Hey, Billy. Nice to meet you. Could you put the divider up? <laughs> yeah. And she's all like, bye, Billy. <laughs> Which is exactly how they would have played it in real life. Absolutely. He would either have to be a complete asshole, right. but the character is not an asshole. Tom's right. just a nice average guy. Right. So he's like, I get why you would want to see her naked too. I do, but <laughs> I'm back here. You're driving. So <laughs> I have maybe, got the authorization. <laughs> right. Maybe next time I'll drive the limo and you can have the hot chick, but that's not how it's working today. Up, up with the shield. Up with the shield. So- yeah, lots of sexy things happen. And then I love how afterwards, my name's Tom, by the way. <laughs> yeah. One thing I wanted to point out, uh, my wife noticed, she's like, did you notice how like halfway through the sex scene, they drive past the Washington Monument? And I'm like, Symbolism. yeah. I, oh. Oh. Okay. You're almost waiting for like, some crane to be like lift going upwards and right. fully extending upwards. <laughs> A jackhammer. Going <laughs> right. So, so they go to uh, Nina's apartment actually first. Which is a clue. It's a clue which there. Is a, which is a clue that tells, you know, everyone that, why, why are they not going to her apartment? Exactly. Like, is somebody watching her? Is somebody, what's going on with this? Exactly. So <laughs> she... Basically knocks and asks to use her bed to fuck on. <laughs> At least she asked. I suppose there's that. I mean, and she made no bones about it. And and what a friend, first of all. Sure. What a friend what, Nina what is. What a friend you have in Nina. <laughs> so, you got a friend in Nina. <laughs> but seriously, to have a friend that would let you use... The bed that you've just been sleeping on, probably. Hey, can you get out, go sleep in my apartment? Right. So we can have sex on your bed. Is that that's, okay? That's a friend yeah, that go. agrees to do all right. that. There's a limo down there with a horned up driver. Here's my mink. Knock yourself out. <laughs> yeah. She takes the mink off in the hallway. Buck naked. Buck naked. There's doors open, hallway, ever anybody, whatever. Giggly, giggly. Woohoo! The 80s. Nice to meet you, Tom. <laughs> nice to meet you too, Nina. <laughs> right. What do you do in that situation? <laughs> you put on the mink and you go with the limo. That's I, what you do. I guess so. We then cut to the next day and uh, we see the cab at the airport and this cop is trying to get people to move out of some sort of lane in the, in the airport or whatever. And he winds up getting to the cab and he's trying to get the cab to move along. And of course, Tom and Susan are in the back. And they just can't keep their hands off each other. And Tom has to, obviously, he's back in uniform. He has to leave and go back on duty. And she is just all over him. Oh, yeah. She is just 
like he has done his job. Good man. There. He he did work apparently. So now, now let's work on uh, changing up the sweaters that she's wearing. Because <laughs> right. I don't know what that thing was, but it looked like it might have been a prop from one million BC or something. But man, she is just swoon, swoon, swoon all over him. And she's like, write me from exotic ports of call. And, yeah. he, and then he has the perfect retort, though. Right. He's like, a port's a port. You're exotic, baby. <laughs> That's right. And more smoochy, smoochy. And more smoochy, smoochy. And then he leaves and she looks on lovingly. And then, of course, he kind of turns back, turns his head and winks at her. Right. How very 80s, too. Yeah, I mean, man, if he'd had long hair, we'd have had this full swish. <laughs> right. Ding. Remember Winks? Nobody winks no, anymore. Nobody does wink anymore. I don't know why nobody winks anymore. Every time I do it to my wife, she loves it. <laughs> I'm just saying. Every time I do it to my wife, she's like, you got something in your eye? <laughs> so then we cut to the naval ship, and it's at sea, and it's at night. It's storming. And uh, we kind of find out that they're supposed to be following this Russian sub that's nearby. And Farrell wants to notify the captain that the foredeck is shipping water, especially too, because there's like a guy out there. And so they're starting to get worried. And the guy that Farrell is replacing or is or is taking over the shift for, mm-hmm. you can tell he doesn't give nearly as big of a shit about his job as Farrell does. Which is kind of the point. Right. It kind of shows that Farrell is like way more responsible, way more sharp about everything. And he's quickly Thomasing all the red flags. Like, this this is all fucked up. Why have you not told anyone? Bad weather, guy on the deck. Why haven't you told the captain that we're, we're pitching and yawing in these really swelly seas? Yeah. Do you want to wake up the captain? It's, it's like, well, like, no, technically I want to be the captain. That's why I'm the first officer. Just shut the hell up. <laughs> right. So it is interesting, too. And I don't know if this is actually a hint or whether he's just trying to be responsible that Farrell is kind of safety first while they're trying to follow a Russian sub. Right. It's like, hmm. Anyway. But I only caught that like upon second viewing where I was like, maybe this is part of it or maybe he's just being responsible. Then we see that the that the forward watch is down from the heavy waves that are hitting him and they want to send a rescue party. But Farrell is just like goes into full hero mode and makes his way down there. No line. He's got no safety line. He no. just just he's just gonna fucking hero this shit and he does (laughs) and he does the guy is dangling upside down with the waves hitting him and he just he just fights his way out there and pulls him back up yep and then manages to rescue the cross of coronado oh wait (laughs) that belongs in a museum exactly can i just say there's some there's some things about this whole scene that really bothered me from a military perspective okay and uh, you know, I'm, I wasn't in the military. I don't play someone in the military on TV, <laughs> but I like to have a little bit of note, uh, information about it. Mm-hmm. And first off, I don't know why you have to have a forward watch at night when you're looking for a submarine. The submarine is yeah. underwater. It's nighttime. So you're tracking it with sonar. Right. But yeah. they needed a device to make him a hero. Of course, of course. But I could have thought of 700 other things that you could do, right? This is true. Second of all- I feel like we do that all the time, though. We find we we see the cheap way that movies tend to I know. find their solutions to a, to a plot problem. Agreed. And I think it's part of our job to point out how silly and stupid <laughs> those call, are. To call and them. then tell them they should work a little harder. <laughs> but there's other things like- and this maybe this is from the book, uh-huh. but the ship is the USS Billings. Okay. There was never a USS Billings until 1990 something. Oh, really? So, okay. And it's got a battleship designation 
on the hat. It's a BB. See, I would have never caught any this of these This is a things. destroyer. It's clearly a destroyer when you look at it. Uh-huh. There is no USS Billings. There's not even a battleship that's called the Billings. They're all named after states. And a battleship would not be tracking a submarine in any way other than try and sink it from a more or less stationary position. <laughs> so, and I mean, I was like, ooh, I'm going full in on this now. But I like, and I'm looking at his badges on his, on his uniform. <laughs> Everything looked legit on the uniform, I got to say. Okay. Right? So wardrobe did their department. Wardrobe did their job. And I imagine that had a lot to do with Kevin Costner. That's not what he would have. Right. But it was just funny that it was a fake ship. <laughs> and, and not just a fake ship, not even a real, real ship. Like, the Enterprise in Top Gun is not the Enterprise, but they say it's the Enterprise on the ship. At least they call it that. Right. So they're calling the ship they're on a different ship, but it's still a real ship. Right. So I'm just like the Billings. The Billings. Because it was the BB that copied. That is not a battleship. So right. I wanted, I was going to go, they meant for it to be a battleship. But they showed a destroyer. Tee, tee. And they started looking like, that's not even a real fucking ship. Right. At all. So see, this is why you're here. I know you can I point know. these things out to me. S- stupid minutia. It never would have. I never would have seen any of that. <laughs> yep. You know, I'm not. You know, nothing but color commentary and useless information. That's me. That's right. <laughs> In no way are you the better half of this situation. <laughs> So he saves the day, and then we cut to the next morning, and ah, breakfast with Bryce. Um, <laughs> Have something to eat. You'll take bad care of yourself. Okay, now let's get up and walk away. Yeah, that was so right. That was such a weird line in the scene. Good God. <laughs> I almost feel like there was more there. Like that scene was yeah. longer, and they cut it for time. Yeah, because I, I wonder if they left it in because they're like, well, this sort of details their weird relationship. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, he, I care about you, but only when it's convenient for me right now, it's conv- Oh, now it's not convenient for me. <laughs> right. So, now we got to get out so, of here. So now you don't get to eat. Sorry. <laughs> so anyway, we, so then we cut to seeing Farrell in the news, like in a newspaper clipping being touted as a hero, daring sea rescue uh, for saving the guy. And we see that it's Bryce reading the newspaper at this restaurant outside very high up and you can see the Washington Monument in the background. It's like, hey, by the way, we're back in Washington. And it's the real Washington Monument, as far as I can tell. Indeed. Not added like the Eiffel Tower to tell us we're in France. (laughs) A window through, you can just conveniently see through a window. It's not like, uh, (laughs) oh gosh, what was the movie that we just watched with with Chris Evans and Ana de Armas? Oh, Ghosted. Yeah, where they were in Washington and they were clearly filming it in Georgia with CGI Washington behind it everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, they're in the real Washington, D.C. having breakfast and Pritchard arrives and they talk about some, this budget bill that has to do with the experimental sub that Bryce has no intention of backing. And we get that weird breakfast line about most important meal of the day. Well, because it's important to note that because- Coffee and cocaine. (laughs) Get it, kids. But it's important to know that because- my theory, which I'll reveal at the end. Okay. Um, there's a genuine caring that Bryce has for Pritchard mm-hmm. that will come out periodically through the film. And yeah, I think this is one of those moments sure. where it's like, I'm worried about you. You need to eat. You don't take good enough care of yourself. Right. Until it becomes necessary for him to continue sacrificing himself. And then he just 
lets him do it. Right. Well, and there is a very specific component of Pritchard's character that is revealed Correct. later that sort of, I think, fuels a lot of this. And also might fuel my theory. So yeah. chew on that for a minute. All right, then. So after their little talk about breakfast, they're still sitting there as they're talking about this budget bill. And you see in the background at another table, you see Senator Duval and CIA Director Marshall and... Bryce has already made it very well known that he's like, I don't give two shits what they, I'm going to do what I want because right. I'm right. in power. He, so he want, he doesn't want the funding for this submarine to continue to go through this so-called phantom submarine. Right. Because it's basically a billion dollar hole that money is just slipping into. Right. And it's probably so, going to fail anyway. Right. And the, the senator, Senator Duvall, is trying to get that sub built probably because it's in his district or whatever. Right. And he's got and he's got the, the got CAA special director. special interests and people yep. pushing him to... Right. And he's got the CAA director in his pocket because he got him confirmed into the job. Right. And so Bryce is coming from the impression that the CIA is providing padded information to support the senator's cause. He's not right. having anything of it because he's king daddy of shit mountain. <laughs> exactly. And Pritchett is his little toilet paper turd. <laughs> and so, you know... He basically says it out front, and Pritchard's like, well, you know he's right back there. Right. Like, and I'm not like, like if he's right back there, or he might hear you back there, because right. the big dick energy that Hackman's <laughs> is like, I don't care. Right. He's fucking Tommy Lee Jones and the Fugitive, which ironically, <laughs> according to the notes, he was supposed to play Tommy Lee Jones and the Fugitive. Really? You know, originally, he was cast for it, and Costner supposedly was for Harrison Ford's part. Get out. And can I just say right now on this wow. tiny segue I just jumped into, that would have been a terrible movie. Don't change anything. Yeah, no kidding. But still, I digress. Wow. Wow. Um, wow. 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 Eye-opening. Um, it's crazy. So as they head out, they stop past uh, Senator Duvall and Marshall. And Bryce nods to Marshall and says he won't do anything before consulting with him about what he's going to do with this budget thing which is horse shit right and they know because, it and, yeah and they know it because as soon as he leaves they're like did you believe any of that and he's like nothing no <laughs> no nope so then they walk out of the restaurant and pritchard and bryce are on the street and you can tell bryce has this little moment of inspiration and he asks pritchard to get feral as he needs a hero around right it's like he's like already the the gears are working about how to sort of deal with this situation right even if Farrell is currently stationed in manila he's like i don't care just get him yeah yeah so, exactly make it make your make it happen make it so i'm I'm king, I'm king dick <laughs> king dick a shit mountain that's right so we cut to manila yes we do which apparently is only <laughs> full of whores <laughs> and strip club dancers completely and and little kids trying to steal your shit yeah, exactly <laughs> that's all it is and a couple street vendors selling ashtrays apparently well, with really lewd shit on them right 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 right, right. <laughs> if anybody has actually been to manila please yes. let us know if this is an accurate depiction <laughs> indeed so tom and his crewmate are out and about and they look pretty drunk and tom's buddy's talking to these whores yeah, and all i'm getting is full metal jacket at this point yeah yeah and i'm like was this maybe a scene that kubrick wanted to use a full metal jacket alcott's like i have an idea right <laughs> so, <laughs> so then this <laughs> this kid steals his bag and costner's like ah who cares there's nothing in it's it it's just except underwear and a toothbrush right exactly Although which it turns out is actually just underwear and a toothbrush <laughs> right <laughs> They wind up at a strip club, but right before that, they have this funny line where he's like, I want to get an ashtray and see some folk dancing. Right. <laughs> Which 
<laughs> Funny enough, one of these is literal and one of them isn't. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, they wind up at the strip club and Farrell is trying to make a pay person to person call, which is even foreign to me. I would have assumed it would have been a collect call, but. Yeah, but not in Manila. I mean, he was having to say, I'm from America. Right. He's so... like, I want to pay the money. You tell me how much it is and I'll put the money in. Right. So the call ends up going through and he's ringing. It's ringing. And then Susan. You see Susan in her bedroom and she's in a nightie and she just immediately hangs up the phone. And then I think she actually pulls it out of the wall on top of that. She unplugs it. She unplugs the back of the phone. Right. From the cord. And then we find out why, of course, because Bryce is there. Hey. And being all hackmany in his robe. Yes. And then on the other end, Tom is so mad, which this this was a bit much. Right. He yanks the entire payphone out of the wall. They would have killed his ass, man. I feel like they would have. <laughs> then he just orders another beer. Right. He just, hey. And, and, and that was the other thing, because his buddy is like, wild thing, because they're playing wild thing right. over the loudspeakers. And it's just sort of like, this is perfectly acceptable. Right. And he's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, everybody starts cheering. And let me say, he looks the most Anthony Edwards in this particular scene. Yes. With the Hawaiian shirt and the aviator goose, sunglasses. Goose to the max. That guy could have been Tom Cruise. <laughs> and even my wife was like, is this supposed to be Tom Cruise and Anthony Edwards from Top Gun? I'm like, no, this was before Top Gun. I'm like, nope, this is actually a year after Top Gun. Oh, is it really? Yes. <laughs> so I'm like, maybe. I mean, it's they definitely did kind of an ode too. Because in that circumstance, it would have been completely correct. Anthony Edwards' character would have been calling Meg Ryan. Exactly. Right? And Tom Cruise would have been like, no, Goose, she's lost that love and feeling. <laughs> and yeah, so... <laughs> Did you ever notice? Did you ever notice that there were a lot of Navy movies? Like the main actors were in the Navy in the eighties. Oh yeah, particularly yeah. after Top Gun, Officer and a Gentleman yeah. too. Well, that was before. It was, but I mean, but, like the eighties was, like the seventies was the Army. Yeah, and the probably 80s, because of Vietnam. Eighties was all Navy. Eighties was almost all Navy. It's like we want our leading actors to be in pretty white uniforms. There's listen to. There is a guy that I graduated high school from. And I'm pretty sure that's exactly why he went into the Navy after high school. I would put money down. Oh, yeah. That Hollywood recruited him into the Navy. Oh, the Navy has said that the 80s were like one of their highest recruitment periods ever. ever. <laughs> so then we cut to uh, the U.S. And again, it's one of these hard cuts, but it's a really clever one. Right. Because again, as opposed to a lot of movies which we've reviewed recently, which have way oversized uh, location titling, mm -hmm. there, I don't believe are any there location. Are there are none. There are none. Every, you learn where everything is through dialogue. Through dialogue or and through, clever yeah. and clever editing and shooting. And I mean, there's really only two locations. Well, three, technically, if you get Annapolis. But three locations in this movie. Right. Four, the boat. So the <laughs> boat, Manila, Washington, D.C., and Annapolis. That's it. Yeah. So you know if he's not on a boat or in Manila... He's in Washington. Right. Or in that immediate vicinity. Exactly. So we see this cab roll up and Farrell's returning home and he goes to see the manager. Of his apartment. Of his apartment uh, to get his mail. Who's an amateur painter. Apparently. How long are you back for, Tom? <laughs> so he lets his manager know that he'll be back for a while and that he's going to work back in the Pentagon. Which is very interesting that his manager seems to know, oh, you're, you're going back to work there, huh? It's not that interesting. I mean, he lives with the, the guy and yeah, they, they talk oh, and things. Sure. And it doesn't have a Russian accent at all. No. So, Some sort of uh, vaguely Middle European <laughs> accent, right, right. but not Russian. Right. So so then we cut again, and Farrell is now at Susan's doorstep, and she's drunk. 
So they're all over each other. And, oh, yeah. And the phone rings. And once again, she rips out the cord. <laughs> well, and, turnabout uh, is fair play. Yeah, exactly. And she's just being super, super playful and, you know, being very touchy-touchy. Ha, ha, ha. And she wants to take pictures of her, her fancy naval boyfriend. He's like... Having none of it. Really doesn't want it at He's all. He's like, nope. He's playing it off nope. like he's shy, but... Uh, and then so f- goes so far as to rip the Polaroid film out of the camera. Well, and then accidentally exposes it too soon. Right. Right, so it's... Accidentally. Like, right. Now, you know, if you were in a situation, say, where you didn't want to be associated through pictures with the person you're at, and you went to the trouble of overexposing the film, the Polaroid film beforehand... Maybe not let it fall under the bed later. Yeah, maybe pocket that shit maybe, and like uh, burn it. At some point in time, I'm pretty sure after that scene, you boned. So you probably slept. You probably had a moment. And you're like, oh, I tripped. <laughs> pocket, pocket, pocket. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, we have to move the movie along. So, Indeed. okay. Yeah. Kind of like the uh, air vent later. Anyway. Uh-huh. Um, no way. <laughs> So we dissolve into an aerial shot of the Pentagon, and then we see uh, Farrell and Pritchard meet with Bryce, and Bryce then explains to Farrell that he will be a liaison between his office and the intelligence community. He goes on to explain that he's mostly concerned with the CIA right now because of the bill to fund the Phantom submarine, and he explains that they want to build one the size of an aircraft carrier. This is a great line, though. They want to build a submarine roughly the size of an aircraft carrier. Well, the Russians won't need sonar to find it. They'll just see this huge bulge out in the ocean. I love that line, actually. It was pretty great. So Pritchard then goes on to explain that because the bill is backed by the CIA, they intend to inflate the estimates based on Soviet research in the field, which Bryce's office needs the same information in order to sort of counter this argument. So Farrell's job is basically to get the raw data that hasn't been manipulated from the CIA so that they can then counter. Farrell then gets this tour of the situation room and the computer room. This is great, too. So Farrell meets back up with Sam in the computer room. And apparently he had sent Sam one of these lewd ashtrays that he had gotten in Manila. And that didn't click with me until the second time I watched the movie. And I laughed so hard. I was like, well, taught my son, taught my kids something. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. My my kids never knew a donkey could do that. Right. Now let me point this out before we go any further. I feel like every computer trope that happened from 1987 until maybe 97, 2000 came right out of this movie. Oh my God. There's so many bad ones. It's its own room, right? Uh Uh-huh. It's all computer, and it's it's probably very technically correct for the time. Spiri computers. Spiri was big on doing big data computers, but not and stuff their like capabilities. That. True, but <laughs> here's what you had: your main guy was disabled in a wheelchair, but wearing a fishing vest <laughs> with a clever bumper sticker at the end. You go into his office; he's got a big box of floppy disks from 3M sitting right on the desk. Right, right. It's very accurate. He's got a space shuttle picture in the background. I mean, yeah. All of the computer people, I think you saw two actual computer people. Both of them look like nebbishy nerds. Yeah. Well, there's that one guy in... in oh God, I've seen him in a million movies. Yes. I can't the guy remember. that he tells to do the adjustments to the picture yes. thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He, and he, he usually plays like some sort of a nebbishy yeah. Hollywood agent or computer nerd. Right. Depending on what era <laughs> of movie he's filming. But I mean, it's just like... Then you've got the bad screens... 
that are representative of exposition, right. but not what an actual computer could do in 1997. Right. And then the computer rendering process. So I had to point out that it's like every computer center looked like this after this movie, it felt like to me. Right. For 10 years. Oh, yeah. Uh, the computer rendering bit. <laughs> Then we get this very uh, efficient bit of editing where suddenly, after being with Sam, we're, we then just cut to a door opening, and Farrell is now in another office, and Pritchard comes in with Kevin O'Brien from the CIA. He's uh, Farrell's contact at the CIA. And we get this interesting little thing where, at the time... Pritchard's really wanting Farrell to kind of start the ball rolling on getting data from O'Brien. Right. But Farrell plays it so cool. He's just, he doesn't, he's like, no, I'm just getting my feet wet, man. You know? And then he pulls a total Columbo. He's like, you know, there's just one thing, though. Excuse me. Excuse me. Excuse me. (laughs) You know, now that I'm thinking about it, there is one thing you might be able to do for me. (laughs) So then he asks... At the last minute for the Russian intelligence estimate numbers. And Pritchard gives this big shit-eating grin and, and just loves that he played it so cool. Right. And Patton plays it so well here because you start with him being really annoyed and really like kind of like worried because like why isn't he asking for anything? Like Right. Well, he specifically brought the CAA guy in for Costner to pat badger him for it. Sure. And the thing that I like about, well, one of the many things I like about Costner's performance here is Farrell doesn't take shit from anybody, yeah. even people that are superior to him. Yeah. He'll follow orders, but, but he'll he's going to do it his, do his way. way. Exactly. And he literally says, Pritchard's like, that was very subtle. And he's like, well, that's what you hired me to be, right? <laughs> well, it's because Pritchard is anything but. No, he's like, get it done, get it done, get it done, manic. The master has spoken. <laughs> we need that information. Get it however you can. Right. And, and Farrell's just like, no, no, look at this guy. All I yeah. got to do is ask. That's right. Look at, no, look at me. <laughs> look into my eyes. I am the captain now. <laughs> So then we cut <laughs> and we see Susan getting ready for something fancy. We're looking at the uh, little jewelry uh, box thing that she has. Mm-hmm. Pay attention, kids. Uh, it's important attention. later. That's right. And the camera widens to show that Tom is there and he's irritated because she's still being a mistress to this mystery person that he doesn't know who it is. And he has to, to stagger his entrance to this event. Right. So, uh, well, this they- is where they make the reveal of that. She's sleeping with Bryce to Farrell. Right. So it it all starts with this jewelry box. And she's like, he's like, where'd you get this? And she's like, well, apparently it came from a a gift from a foreign minister. And then it, and then it just sort of spirals into it, spirals into it. We find out that it's Bryce. And 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 he's like, do you know I work for Bryce? And she's she's like, well, that makes two of us now. Right. Well, the thing (laughs) is there was a perfect opportunity there for a coster. You know, I work for him. Right. And it was very, you know, I work for him, right? Right. He didn't. He didn't. He didn't, he didn't cost her that up. He didn't. So cost that her uh, up. good job, Kevin. Good. Good instincts on that one. <laughs> good one, Kevin. But then her response is, "Well, that makes two of us." Then, and I'm just like, "Was that the only take? Did you guys like? Was that the last <laughs> take of the day?" And like, you know what? We're, our setups are done. I I, I got to get a doctor's appointment. Maybe they did it like one. maybe they did it like ten times, and then and but it, that was she, the best she, take. Maybe they did it ten times, and she just kept saying it the exact same way in every take. And then Donaldson's just like, you know what? We're good. Yeah, because I'm like, you ever? I mean, you know, you get that. It's like that was the best take. <laughs> Like, did the dailies get scrapped for some reason? Yeah. That was the only thing that was salvageable. I hate those moments because it just was like, well. That makes both of us. <laughs> Hello, I am a replicant. 
<laughs> or a replicant. I cannot tell. It was terrible. So then we cut to see uh, Bryce getting ready for this thing. And Pritchard is begrudgingly going to go pick up Susan. Right. And Bryce knows that he doesn't approve. And we'll get into the suspicions that we have about this whole situation later. But Bryce tries to explain that she's, well, invigorating. Hmm. So She's definitely that. Yes. So then we cut back again. And, and uh, Pritchard is now knocking on Susan's door. Again, super efficient editing. We kind of get this little bickering moment between Susan and Tom first. And then she runs downstairs and leaves with Pritchard, leaving uh, Tom sitting in a chair, almost Pierce Brosnan circa Tomorrow Never Dies, right. pissed off and smoking a cigarette. Like if you switch the cigarette with Stoli vodka, you would have Pierce Brosnan from Tomorrow Never Dies as he's pissed off in the hotel room. But anyway, I digress. I mean, it's a good shot. It's a, it is a good shot. It's a great shot because he's pissed off. He's mad. Right. And I'll have to, I have to question because I, I thought that at some point in time, after she left, he went back to his place to get his tux because I don't think that was the same house. Oh, maybe that is. Well, again, the editing is so fast. Right. That like for all I know. Yeah. He could have flown to, you know. <laughs> he could have been back in Manila again. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so so then we cut to the party. And this time I'm sure it's the party. So, <laughs> And uh, Bryce is there. Talking to Duval and Marshall, but he's not really talking to them. He's just kind of listening to them talk, and he's too busy trying to see Susan off in the corner with Pritchard, who is just miserable. Right. <laughs> Mis- well, stuck, o- stuck over in the corner in yeah, this, on this couch. He's sitting at the I don't want to dance wall <laughs> yeah. with another dude. And Susan. Eating hors d'oeuvres. <laughs> or is that hors d'oeuvres? I believe that's hors d'oeuvres. Chris. <laughs> Can I get a... Uh, <laughs> uh, we need a French uh, pronunciation, please. Can we have the language specialist Thank you. please let us know? Thank you. <laughs> so, and then in walks Farrell, and uh, he then says hi to his boss, and then he kind of casually nods to Susan that they should leave, not soon thereafter. Right. And which is, again, interesting, like that he's willing to once again, like pull her out of her quote unquote duties with Bryce. Right. And then they do leave and then they disappear for the whole weekend because that's when we kind of travel into act two. So again, another quick cut has been, has noted. Yeah. This one was so quick that it literally took me a second to follow because he's just, here's what it is. They, they, he goes into one door, they go out one door and then he literally comes right back out another one, but it's a different doorway. It's a totally different day. It's just. So this is like, this is like the monsters Inc of spy movies, right? We just have doors. We go in doors that come (laughs) out. Kind of. Yeah, I guess so. But we see Tom and he's uh, no longer in uniform. He's back in civilian clothing again and he's leaving his apartment rather than uh, Susan's apartment. Yes. To get into her little red two-door convertible. Porsche. Yeah. Which, you know. It's pretty nice. Like you do. <laughs> like you do. The Tom's apartment manager pops his head out there. He's like, oh, going on a romantic <laughs> getaway, are we? And it's slightly not Russian, but still Middle European accent. <laughs> yes. And he's like, yeah, yeah, love and, and other things. But uh, they go driving off. And I mean. It's this is maybe the most eighties part of this movie. Oh yeah, in my brain. Yes, the way they're dressed, the little hair tie. You might as well have the song "Something Tells Me I'm Into Something Good" right playing in the background, or any <laughs> anything that John Hughes would have thrown in a movie right. somewhere. <laughs> yeah, from some obscure English band you never heard of. <laughs> right, but it's 
They, you got the little driving montage that Dude, they're going the through. the bugs on the windshield. It was a little odd. That was f- weird. It was odd. That was odd. I, I mean, somebody <laughs> wrote... What, one hopes somebody wrote that. Costner's just not... Yeah, no. Nope. Mm. Yeah, it's like, did Costner just... Hey, watch this. This will be funny for the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I'll eat some bugs. Or act like I'm eating bugs. Right. Or something. I, 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 <laughs> so even weird. my wife was like, did he just... Eat and like, <laughs> I, I try not to get caught up in it. I want to watch the movie, but anyway, so they're driving off to Annapolis for a romantic getaway. Um, they uh, ch- Annapolis, uh, Annapolis. <laughs> they check into this uh bed and breakfasty kind of place, and they're just giggling and he <laughs> and you know, he gives the bill, the bellboy a big tip and says, yeah. I want you to take care of us, and then off the kid goes. Pay attention to that kid, kids. Yeah. He might come in later. In um, full, in full uh yeah. hotel. He, only, he had one costume for this <laughs> yeah, show, yeah. this movie. That was it. <laughs> right. But it was important that you knew where he came from later. Yes. Um, but anyway, and, you know, they're just being flirty, flirty, lovey, lovey, dovey, dovey. They later on, I'm assuming after they bone again, <laughs> um, a lot of off-screen boning. You only get the one actual boning moment in well, the props for them to showing some control yeah absolutely <laughs> i mean this could have got a really hard r push right. to nancy i mean this is 87 i mean right. in any other movie we would have gotten like three or four yeah so there was some <laughs> there was some restraint there was definitely some restraint right anyway so they head out tom wants to go out on the ocean so they go and they get this character actor who only plays this guy in bikers. Right, yeah. Right. Yeah. Today he's the he's the dock master with his blue chambray shirt and his black <laughs> Greek fisherman's cap. And you know, Costner's like, I don't want to rent one of these plastic dinghies over here. I want that. He's like, well, no, that's the manager's boat, my owner's boat. You can't do that. Oh no. Stop laying out the money. <laughs> and you know, so they get the big sailboat and they go out and right. it's a sailing montage. We get to show how competent he Tom is, is yeah. at swinging his dick around. <laughs> while clearly. While, I mean literally. <laughs> literally. While while Susan's over there, you know, pretending to be helpful. Tom, yeah, helpful. <laughs> you know, and, and give me a kiss, she says. And I mean it's all very flirty and romantic yeah. for what it is. It's the lovey-dovey scene in Honor Majesty's Secret Service, but for this movie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just an interlude to show that they really... They really actually like each other. Yeah. It, it's showing you that when things are revealed at the end, that Tom is actually falling in love with this girl. That Right. Despite any despite other... Despite any other directives that he might have had prior. Right. So, it, it's good. We get it. You're in love with each other. <laughs> I, You know, it's fine. She's a little crazy. <laughs> but sometimes it's okay to have a little crazy in your life. So uh, as quick as they left, the trip is over. Yeah, they're right, um, back, and right back at home. They come walking right back into Susan's place. And with the phone, it's immediately ringing. She picks up the phone and... She's very light and frosty and, and chocolate-covered raisins about the whole thing. <laughs> but Tom's like, well, what was that all about? Yeah. Right? Because she says, well, it's it's Nina called. and But he's getting the thing that Nina... And boy, here's something I don't understand. Why did Nina know that Price was looking for her? Or Bryce, rather. Because I got the impression for that phone call that Nina was telling her... Oh, that somebody was by or... Yes. Or, okay. Yes. So why... If Pritchard was not aware of this person until later on in the movie. Ah, that is a good question. And it appeared that Price didn't know either, or Bryce rather. So I'm a little confused as to that. But the the crux of it is the message was that her absence in the weekend had gone noticed. Sure. And 
she started getting a little wonky about it. And then Tom gets pouty right. about it. Right. And then she does the whole can-can dancing scene where she comes and sits and pouts and right. everything. Like, everything's going to che- be fine. <laughs> right. And tries to cheer him up. Right. And so. But uh, then. Uh, yeah. You know, as she's. As she's trying to talk him off the ledge, Bryce shows up in the in his government issue Chrysler K car. I'm like, <laughs> did he get that from the motor pool? Because I feel like a guy who's a Secretary of State isn't going to drive a Chrysler K car unless it's a government issue kind of thing. Yeah, it seemed very weird that that mm-hmm. would be his own personal car. He should have been driving a much nicer car. If, he's, if the mistress has a Porsche, unless he was trying to be incognito about it because well, he doesn't want to be seen, which is why at I'm his thinking, mistress's house. That's why. I'm thinking maybe it was a it was a pool car, yeah. you know. But then a pool car would have government plates, so maybe not. Probably overthinking this. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so he's out there and he's kind of like fidgeting. You can see him fidgeting in the car, yeah. Which is really just to give enough time for Tom to have a fit about Susan asking him to go out the back way, right? And he's all like, "When I leave this to house, I'm going out the front door." That's like, right, right. With you got your beer in your hand and your hand down your pants, you're ready to go. This is my house, woman. <laughs> But and he's got this whole duality thing going on at this point yeah. because he's got other reasons to not get pissed off. Right. But he's pissed off because he's invested now. Yeah. So he eventually capitulates yeah. and goes out the back door. Well, you know, cooler heads prevailed. Yes. And and off he goes. But yeah. we get the scene where Hackman finally gets the nerve to go into the building and you see him in the light at the front door and you see Coster just kind of come out Terminator style. Right. And he's in the shadows. He's in the shadows. Perfectly darkened. So you can't see who he is. Holding his bag from the trip. And it's enough for Hackman to go, was there somebody in her place? Right. Right. Because she's living in a house, not an apartment. So there was no reason anybody should have come out of the alleyway unless they were in the house. Right. But he can't make out who he is. And he's all like, well, I I don't, I'm just going to go in and find out what's going on. (laughs) Right. And then Coster turns around and walks off. And I'm just like, hmm. Are we just trying to say that he's at odds with what he's supposed to be doing at this point? And yeah. he's being very impulsive, maybe. But in this way, you have both of them being impulsive at the same time. Yeah. So over the same They're thing. They're both sort of having this moment of weakness as far as weakness in terms of being logical thinking. Maybe. Well, yeah. And, and letting their emotions sort of take puffing over. up their chests, so yeah. to speak, in the same yeah. situation. Coster's thing is, is my ego's bruised because... The woman that I'm in love with is kicking me out for this other guy that's boning her on the side. Right. And the guy on the side's pissed off because he feels like he's losing control of the thing that he controls. Right. So he has control. So his ego's bruised. Right. Exactly. So there's your deep psychological moment for No Way Out. No Way Out. Um, Anyway, so Bryce goes in and... Is immediately snotty with her. Oh, and she, she's just like, well, fuck you, dude. And yeah. gets handsy with her Ugh. and it hits Wait, her. Yeah. And then this is, a, I hate this kind of thing. I feel like she could have fought back pretty easy. Oh, yeah. And the, the fall off the balcony thing is so bad. No, oh, it's it's terrible. It's so terrible. The no. <laughs> like, <laughs> in slow oh, fashion. I know. <laughs> and I t- there was something in another. There's that scene has been several kinds of movies where that same scene is, you know, the the whole Hitchcock thing with the sure. pulling the camera while putting in the focus. But yeah, it's terrible. My <laughs> wife was watching with me during that very moment, and she was just like, "Oh my god, this is so bad." Well, because she, she figured that the whole movie was as bad as that one moment, and I'm like, "Well, no, but it's just it's the '80s, and this is what they did." And they- <laughs> well, and my wife was like, later on in the film, Costner falls off of 
a tree from a higher height. Oh, right. And, and he's, he's fine. fine. Yeah. Well, so, that's the other. Yeah, you're right. Because it's like the fall was not far. The thing that I, yeah, that's the thing. She could have survived that fall. They said she died from a broken neck. I'm like, she fell through a glass table. Yeah. Maybe a piece of glass in her back. The glass table would have literally broken her fall. Right. And she would have maybe broke a couple bones, That's but what she I'm would saying. have been fine. I would like to have seen, you don't even have to have it jutting out. I would just like to have seen a pool of blood come out around where her heart was, like she got a shard of glass in there and that's what killed her. Or the frame of the coffee table impaled her or something. Yeah, or she, Anything to like sell this... This. Like if she'd fallen on a solid wood table, I would have believed that she broke her neck more than her hitting something that dissipated all the energy. Right. And she dropped an additional <laughs> foot. <laughs> right. Right? Right. So the whole death thing was a little sketchy. Yeah. But that whole scene, once Hackman walked in, was sketchy. It really was. I mean, he sold it for being kind of manic and trying to dial it back. But the whole premise was flawed. And it also didn't feel entirely... I don't know if I bought that it was in Bryce's character to do that. Well, and the second slap felt like it wasn't. The first slap felt very impulsive. Yeah. And maybe in character. The second one was intentional. Yeah. And yeah, it didn't feel like he was the kind of person that normally lost control like that. Maybe that's what they were trying to say, that she drove him so crazy that he was outside of his wheelhouse. Yeah. But I felt it, it probably would have more gravity if he choked her. Yeah. You know, if he'd done something or if she went off the balcony, hit her head, something that would have made her death look realistic. Yes. <laughs> Other than the fact that it's like, well, now we don't have to listen to her act anymore because <laughs> she's dead. And she did a good job of being dead. I'll admit to that. But anyway, she's dead. We do another cut out to Bryce showing up at Pritchard's place and <laughs> that robe, man. Oh, yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Put on some pants, buddy. Yeah, um, well, you know. He's obviously, he's very distraught and he's, you know, telling kind of like, I, I think I killed her. That's my favorite part. You think? <laughs> no, you. Did dead. you not go double check? Did you go see the shark eyes? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nothing going on. But um, then she, you know, he's telling him that there was, that the guy was there and, um, well, did you, did you get a good look at him? No, it was dark as if it was setting up some sort of a thing for a movie. It was right. unusually dark and I can make nothing out. Um, but Pritchard, you, you don't even get the sort of like, you know, don't worry, I'll take care of it. Next thing you do, you cut to Pritchard in his spy clothes. Right. And he's literally just. He's dust in the house. You get the, you get the literal view from the dead body of right. Pritchard standing over her. Right. <laughs> and he's, he's dusted the prints. Right, he's wiping the right. prints down. He's taking mail. Takes her planner, which probably has his number in it. I mean, he's doing. And this guy's an attorney, right? And uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and, and be, he's the legal counsel for the Secretary of Defense. This guy's I like. It I read of, a lot of Ian Fleming novels. Well, it kind of makes you wonder if he's done this once before. Well, because here's the thing, right? <laughs> As we find out with the Contra guys, who were probably ex-military CIA guys, right? It makes you wonder if Pritchard was. Using those gentlemen well, on a regular basis, yeah, maybe? because maybe he was associated with them. Like, he's a lawyer now. But he had a Was he, he a lawyer for the CIA he when had he started? Different career. Right. <laughs> so, but he's, he's so efficient and proficient at what he's doing. Yes. Like, I yeah. might have done this a couple times before. <laughs> right. But he goes through, and then there's a phone call, and it's Tom calling from a bar, and the answering machine goes off. But at the last minute, Tom decides not to say anything, which you're like, good thing, because someone was listening even though you didn't know that good thing you're an asshole tom and he hangs up the phone and then pritchard takes the cassette 
because it's going to have messages on it from uh, Bryce. Right. So why the CID people, when they were investigating the house, didn't notice that there was a cassette tape missing? Right. They would have. That's a that's a good detail. To you would think that detectives that would come in and take a look at all that be like, well, why, where's the answering machine tape? Right. Well, and then this they, is an active answering machine that's right. plugged in and connected up. And they were they were checking phone calls, which. Later, when they start going through the detail, I'm like, did it really take that long to track all the phone calls? I remember when I used to get phone bills when I was younger, well, and it had every call on the phone bill right. that came to your house. And wouldn't have Bryce's number come up on that? Too? Exactly, unless he was calling from a payphone every time. Right. They didn't have cell phones. That's the beauty of this movie. Cell phones can't solve everything in this film. <laughs> right? Exactly. Because if this was made now, she'd have taken a picture of him on the cell phone, and they could were trying to get it unencrypted and unlocked because it was an Apple phone. Case closed. <laughs> right? Yeah. We know there's pictures in there. We just can't call Apple. And Apple would be like, no, we respect our customers' privacy. So <laughs> fuck you, Federal Bureau of Investigation. But uh, anyway, so as Pritchard's going through the house, he finds the... Uh, clumsily retained <laughs> uh, photo negative of the Polaroid. Um, Which, and, and, it's just like, come on! I mean... I, if you're so hell-bent on ripping a photo negative out of a camera, you would be hell-bent enough to take that correct. same negative with you so that nobody finds it. Right, it's... it's I don't know. It's, and use a fictional computer that could suddenly make up your picture based off of nothing. But anyway, we'll get to that. Well, no, not based off, based off what you tell it to find, which is even worse. Yeah. I want it to be a gigantic banana. <laughs> Look, Kevin Custer is a banana. <laughs> it would have been like a funny thing that they could have done in college humor if this came out now. It's like, we want it to look like a Civil War cowboy. And it's Kevin Costner from Dances with Wolves. We want it to look like a baseball player. And it's Kevin Costner from For the Love of the Game. You know, it's just, what about a uh, Coast Guard? guy hey look it's him from the guardian how about a bodyguard hey look it's Whitney Houston um I don't know yeah it's stupid and silly but we have to allow it because it's literally what puts all the stakes in the film right right so anyway we cut back to Pritchard in Bryce's office Pritchard's trying to convince him that we can get out of this I have an idea. <laughs> I know how we can. I know how we can do this. In my weird southern, but not southern, not accent. southern, biting my teeth while I'm talking voice. <laughs> he kind of comes up with this elaborate plan to use a fictional. Well, I shouldn't say fictional. A believed Russian mole in the Pentagon called right. Yuri that the CIA has been saying has been there for years. Right. But there's been no solid proof or anything. Right. And so Pritchard's idea is to basically say, will make the Secretary of Defense's office or the Defense Department look good by getting our own internal investigation team to find Yuri. And that will give us all this extra clout with the intelligence community and everything else to help further your goals, Bryce, but also allow us to peg the murder on the same guy. And so you're killing two birds with one stone. Exactly. Not only do you get out of the murder charges, but everything you want gets delivered to you on a platter. Right. It makes you look really good now that you've just been reelected. Right. Secretary of Defense, and now you've just found Yuri on top of everything else. Right. So, you know, you'll be right in the next four years without any problem whatsoever. You know, and they kind of give a little bit of extrapolation on who Yuri is. That The premise was that they brought him here in his teens. Right. He's fully integrated as an American citizen and that he's managed to reach some sort of position high enough in government that he would be working at the Pentagon sure. to funnel out information, which you could easily see why in the paranoid 80s, any security or intelligence 
outlet would think that Indeed. something like that was possible. Because in the 80s, the Russians were the Russians. <laughs> right. And they're always trying to infiltrate and get all the information they can get. <laughs> Although, honestly, they're kind of back. But <laughs> Well, you know. <laughs> they went away for a while and now they're back. And, well, let's not get into that. No, because, you know, the whole cycle of that is Russians, not Nazis, Russians, Nazis, yeah. Russians, Nazis, <laughs> Russians. I've, I don't want, I, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, no. let's moving on. Let's moving on. So anyway, Bryce really isn't going for it. Right. He's super distraught at this point. He wants to, that's the thing is he wants to do the right thing. He does, he but he also. He comes to Pritchard saying, I'm yeah. going to go turn myself in. I just need to talk to somebody first. Yeah. And gets convinced to not do that. But then he starts getting this sort of gleam in his eye like, well, if this could work, then I get to still be King Daddy of shit about it. <laughs> right. Okay, toilet paper troll. We'll, well give and it at a this, shot. At this point, Pritchard is being way more than just the little devil on his shoulder. He is... Right. He's running the show. He's here. running the damn show. This is like Ratatouille, where... <laughs> he's pulling he's, Hackman's curly hair. <laughs> right. And making him do whatever he wants. Right. But I mean, in Hackman's defense, if you could say that, you know, his entire world's about to come crashing down around him. So, sure. grasping at a few straws for this guy that makes things happen. We've established he can make shit happen. Right. That maybe, maybe it could work. Right? Yeah. So we we cut the daybreak opening at the Pentagon. And we see Major Donovan. Major Donovan. I don't understand. I mean, I guess I understand why he would have to be in a suit since they're an investigative division. But if he's still walking around with the major title, why wouldn't he just be in uniform? I don't know. I, I mean, know. you can investigate crimes in, in olive drab just as easily as you can investigate crimes in your street clothes. This is true. I mean, Tom Cruise was prosecuting a case in A Few Good Men. Maybe wardrobe's budget was limited. I, I don't know. You know, it must guy, have been because those suits were all bad. The guy playing Donovan, he brought a suit from home. That's probably what it was. We got a $15 million budget here, people. And all of it went to Hackman. Yeah, and all of it went to Hackman. So you have a suit, you have a suit. Costner's just like, well, you know, I actually have a bunch of naval uniforms because I like the cosplay Navy stuff. Turns out I'm going to play a lot more of these type of roles in the future. Yeah. So, or, or the entire wardrobe budget was spent on Sean Young's bad dresses and all of his uniforms. Right. <laughs> Everybody else had to bring their clothes from home. He did have like five naval uniforms. He switched his uniforms like three or because four different times. Because he gets dirty five times in the constantly. movie. Constantly. I always thought that was the worst thing for naval officers because... Yeah, it's white. It's white. <laughs> so they have to have spares everywhere. But anyway, so Donovan comes in. Donovan's basically in charge of the internal police force for the Pentagon. Right. He's got some kind of file, which gets delivered to Bryce's office while they're debriefing Farrell about this investigation. Right. And it's basically, it's a file with all the information about Susan's death. Right. And so Bryce and Pritchard are, are stressing, you know, it's important that we are the ones that find Yuri. So we're not going to involve the CAA. We're not going to involve the FBI. Tom's going like, all of this sounds really fucking stupid. Right. right? He's like... His entire you, attitude. You know everybody's going to have their hackles up when they right. actually find out. And they will find out. And they do find out. And they do find out. Like the CAA is all like, well, there's some shit going down over here <laughs> right. later. Right? right. They literally hear it like five minutes after the whole right. thing starts. So... The, if, if you had any belief that this wasn't going to work, it's dispelled literally five minutes later. Right. But as they're talking about it, Farrell looks at the folder he's given, and they start talking about the woman whose body is over at, I think, Fort Meade or wherever. Yeah, the, um, they somehow completely... Yeah, they took her body to the military facility to do the autopsy, and he sees right. a picture of who it is, and we know who it is, and now Tom knows who it is, and man... 
Costner sells he crushes this moment. My, absolutely. It's my favorite bit of acting from Costner in the whole movie when he the silent freak out first. Right. And then the freak out in the bathroom is so good because Oh, I know. I have literally had moments like that in my life where I'm just like so f- stressed out or whatever. Where I've literally done almost exactly what he did. Yeah, he just walks in there lost trying to process yeah, splashing some water on his face. Plus, he's dealing with the fact that... Gets in a downward dog <laughs> position. Yeah. He's got to go be Tom Farrell. Yeah. He's got the pressure of knowing that. Plus, he's got the other things that are going on. And he's in love with this woman that's dead. Yeah. And that he just, wasn't supposed to be in love with in the first place. And he didn't realize that she was dead anyway. No, because when he left her, they just got in an argument and she was fine. Right. So Farrell comes back out of the bathroom. And I have to say, it's funny, you know, as he's like, excuse me for a moment. He starts walking that way. And Hackman's like, are we boring you, Mr. Farrell, <laughs> Commander? Right. You know, and he's like, can I use this and points to the bathroom? And he's all like, we can't even sell him. And he's our guy. <laughs> right, right, right. Right. But so Farrell comes back out and he gets introduced to Donovan, the, the major Donovan, which is funny because later on in the movie, Donovan refers to him as sir. And yet they're both the same rank. Technically, a major and a lieutenant commander are the same. Oh, they are? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I guess technically since Farrell was his superior because he was told he was in charge of the investigation. Right. He's essentially the lead. But he would not have called him sir. He right. would have called him lieutenant commander or commander. I sure. Think. But, you know, it's a little thing. Um, But anyway, he says he wants to see the body. There's no reason for you to see the body. They go down to the situation slash computer room. Donovan tells Farrell about the autopsy on the body. Farrell's like, well, I want to go see the apartment. There's no need for you to see the apartment. We've got it covered. Because his first thing he's thinking of, did I leave that fucking picture where somebody could find it? Exactly. That's the only reason he wants to go back. Right. Because he knows that no matter what happens... And I don't think he's, he hasn't even put the whole fake Yuri thing in place at this point. Sure. But he's just like, I don't want to be implicated in this. Yes. For all the reasons. All the reasons. So they walk through to where Sam Hesselman is, is hanging out. Pritchard wants to know what's going on. He tells him the tracking phone numbers that took place over the week looking for Susan's. Now, again, I mentioned earlier, this seems like bullshit. Yeah. You would think that this would already be phone records. They could easily. Yeah. The phone company knew who you were calling back in the 70s. Yeah. Because you were supposed to look through your bill to make sure you didn't get charged for calls that weren't yours right right who's calling from cincinnati right now (laughs) granted you have to get a subpoena to get those right but is hacking into the phone database any more ethical i don't know (laughs) well you know they're trying to circumvent all the other well that's it to get they would have had to go to the department of justice to get a subpoena there you go right Uh, because i don't you know Here's another interesting question for our listeners. If you have any military law experience, <laughs> can the Judge Advocate General's office issue warrants for civilian property or only for military? Mm. Feel free to write in and let us know. CICDeadDrop at gmail.com. What he said. <laughs> so basically, yeah, the whole thing here is we're trying to use all the stuff at our disposal that won't get the rest of the world knowing what we're doing. Right. Right. But still, at the end of the day, I feel like you could have gotten who called her over the last week a lot faster. Yeah, a lot faster. Um, but computers are still a little wonky here. Yeah. They're magic at some things and bad at others. <laughs> well, you know, that's how you move the plot along. Right, right, right. You know, until everybody got one in their house and we're like, bullshit. Um, <laughs> exactly. You, you could fake it for a while there. Yeah. Well, you could even fake it when you first got your first computer in the house because that one was a piece of junk. That was garbage. Yeah. <laughs> As well, we've pointed out before, all the computers that are in here are doing shit computers did not do. Nope. 
Computers didn't start doing things that computers could do until never, because <laughs> we just watched Mission Impossible 7 dead drop thing. <laughs> dead drop. <laughs> dead drop. Dead, rec- dead drop <laughs> reckoning part seven. And the bad guy's a computer. Spoiler. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, I don't think computers have ever been. I think they've just learned to make it look more convincing as they've gone along. Yeah. But this was back when they were mysteries. Yeah. Computers could do everything back then. Oh, or yeah. nothing. Yeah. Depending on what the nothing. plot required. Exactly. So anyway, so they're tracking the phone numbers. Uh, all the physical evidence that they collected at the house is being logged. Pritchard, who has the photo negative, yes. cleverly slides it in as if this had... I guess they were still cataloging. But I feel right. like the guy cataloging was like, I don't fucking remember this. Right. And I'm pretty sure it was the same guy that handed Farrell the box later. So... <laughs> Well, this guy's real spotty on chain of evidence, <laughs> chain of custody. Yeah, not exactly. I feel like he should get fired. <laughs> yeah. If you're the evidence guy and you're just handing shit out, not, not tracking great. anything. Not great. Not that, great. That is shoddy work, sir. <laughs> yeah. Shoddy work. Anyway, so while Pritchard and Farrell are talking, O'Brien from the CAA comes up with the requested data. And Pritchard's like, well, just get rid of him. I'm like, no, we asked him to be here, dumbass. <laughs> right. Remember what you hired me to do? Right. He's like, gonna, There's going to be red flags going off in his head if right. we don't. Which, let's face it, if Pritchard hadn't gone, Costner could have sold it. Yeah. If he'd wanted to. I don't think at that point his intent was to sell it. Right, he, no. he wanted to get alone with, with O'Brien to say, something ain't right here. Yeah, he was going to make his move right. Right, and, right then and there. And Pritchard cock-blocked him the whole way. Yeah. Which, you know, still makes O'Brien... Super suspicious. Super suspicious. I do how, like how, before they go, Pritchard gets on the phone and makes a phone call, which was clearly to tell somebody to call him at Farrell's office in five minutes... To make the phone call, oh, we got to go. Bryce wants us now. Yeah. And he wants you too, so let's go. Right. And O'Brien's like, are you guys like the worst at this thing ever? <laughs> I mean, I, I'm i right here watching you, and you guys are so bad at this spy shit. And he literally said, he said because the guy's just like, I'm available 24-7 if you need me. And guys are like, okay. With his eyeballs like, I don't want to go. Save me, Kevin. <laughs> So anyway, that that gets O'Brien a thinking, which we find out a little bit later on in the film. As they're walking off, Pritchard tells Farrell, we probably should have all the outgoing calls monitored from here because obviously he's there. They think the mole is there anyway. Maybe they should monitor to see if anything comes up. Well, and I feel like, too, this is the seed that starts... Richard not trusting Farrell. Oh, absolutely. And, he, and he's like, I want to know if Farrell's calling the CIA and, right. and leaking information. He basically wants to track him. Okay, that makes sense. This one was always a little sketchy to me. I'm not sure why we needed to monitor. Apparently, I wasn't paying attention because I was so captivated by Kevin Costner. Please help me. <laughs> help me. That's okay. I was captivated by uh, Sean Young and didn't notice that it wasn't just a relationship for a long, long time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> The chaos continues. We now cut over to a file and Farrell is back in his office with Donovan, who's telling him that the autopsy reports shows that she died of a broken neck, which would be the only thing she could have conceivably died from. <laughs> right. From such a short fall onto right. her back. Anything else wouldn't make that even would have had remote. more blood. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we all have to buy into that. Yep. Here we go. Here we go. Donovan then mentions that uh, during the autopsy, they got the contents of her stomach. And this is like... This is another pseudoscience thing here. Well, yes and no, but... I mean, maybe they could do that in 87. I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 
but this is an 80% costume moment. Well, why are we doing that? <laughs> right? And I'm like, dude, have you never watched a, a murder mystery before? <laughs> if we could find out where she ate. Now, granted, he says we might be able to find local minerals or whatever. That part was dumb. But if they te- can tell that she had lobster that's indigenous to Maryland or right. the water that she drank might have mineral content right. from where she was at. Because I think they said something about like toxins in the food or, or yeah, something absolutely. That, that were specific to Specific areas. to the area. And yeah, that that's totally legit. It's just like when they do mud samples, right. like some dirt is specific to certain yeah. areas. So it's and it's a standard thing in all homicide cases. Mythbusters. It's, it's plausible. It, it's absolutely plausible. <laughs> in in regular homicide investigations, they always check the contents of the person's stomach. Well, there you go. Um, because they might find the things that they found in other orifices as well. Right. And then, in a murder of a woman, they're going to check that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, if yeah. you can get the DNA, you're, you're, hey, 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 hey. Hey, hey, we got DNA. Which I'm, you know, which, and they did say, you know, because later on they're talking about that they did find semen in her to get the guy's blood type. Right. Right. Which is the DNA testing was not a thing then. Right. Right. So they would get the normal things you would get out of it. Blood type, probably male, whatever else. But you weren't going to be able to go... Dong dong. We know who it is. <laughs> right. And he's in the DNA database. Right. Which we have everyone, apparently. Yeah. Or in her case, it could have been multiple people. Who knows? <laughs> oh, that, would have, that would have been a whole different movie. Oh, boy. Yep. Um, but anyway, uh, I, I, I digress. So Pritchard has now ordered the two Contra goons. And man, are there two goonier looking goons in moviedom? I mean, Quato, I want to feel like we want to call him Quato. And I just want to call him Quato. I don't even remember what his name was. Quato and Wobbles, I think is what we should call them. What is it? Marshall Bell. Marshall Mar- Bell. Who That's has been in every 80s movie ever. Oh, yeah. Mar- we, well, but you'll never know his actual name because he always plays people like Quato. Yeah. Or, or just some, you know, he's really- He's in Total sh- Recall. Yeah. He's in uh, Starship Troopers. Yeah. He's in uh, tons of shit. Tall, I think it was in a lot of Verhoeven stuff. And like Paul Verhoeven really liked him a lot. <laughs> yeah. But and then the other guy is just like- Dracula. <laughs> some sort of vaguely European, Mediterranean-y, who runs, Carpathian-y. Who runs with his arms to his side, he held, runs like held to his side, and he, yeah. and he doesn't really lift his his knees, his, his upper body. It's, it's just the bottom part right. of his legs moving he, when he runs. He runs like he has... The, remember, remember those lemon drop things you had when you were a kid that you would put on your ankle and you would spin them around and jump around them? Right. He looks like he's got one of those attached to each of his ankles and he's just running to to spin the lemon drops <laughs> while his hands are just sort of like flailing around like a T-Rex. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, not very convincing that you're some sort of a, you know, it's you're some guy. sort of a, yeah, you're some sort of a CIA dark ops operative because you seem not menacing at all. Right. <laughs> at, at least Marshall Bell seemed menacing. Yes. Right. Yeah. You at know? least he gave a look that was like convincing. Right. And he's taller and he's just got the kind of I'm a bad guy face yeah. kind of thing. But yeah, this other guy, not even close. But anyway, he, he's got these two guys in here. He explains that they are, what, what did he say? Special forces adjacent or something like that. Yeah, it's just- and Cos was like, well, what is it? Is it special <laughs> forces goes, or adjacent? Are you guys full, part of the death squads? He goes full caution. Right. He does, he does, he does, are you full? Yeah, exactly. You know, are you part of the death squads? Are you little bit of this? in their face about right, it, too. Right. And they're just all like, uh, no. <laughs> I mean, it's so crazy. And he starts realizing if these guys are working for Pritchard, 
this is going south in a hurry in a way I don't want it to go. Right. Right. Um, I'm going to need to think of an exit strategy soon. Yeah. yeah. Well, for me and for other people, as it turns out, but Pritchard's like, you need to get control. He's, you know, and they go into a room where Fred's like, you are not telling me everything. But so Pritchard's like, all right, you're right. And, because he thinks that Farrell's still on his team at this point. Right. You know, he's like, I need to give him a little bit of a carrot here to get him back in line. Yeah, to get him back on my team. Yeah, exactly. And he says, okay, so Susan was Bryce's mistress, but it all tracks like it was still a Russian agent who killed her. And so this is where Koster gets the little, aha. <laughs> okay, so Bryce did it. Yeah. Right. I think this is where the, the seeds finally got planted for that. Tom argues that they should bring in the FBI and Bryce is like, because Bryce is in an impossible situation. If he's not responsible for killing her, he just needs to take his lumps and get through the investigation. Right. That's just the way it is. Yeah. But of course, Pritchard's not having anything of doing that, you know, because he can't have the Secretary of Defense being caught in a relationship that isn't with his wife. Yeah. Well, and the fact that this this woman could be somehow connected to a Russian spy. Right. So double Jeopardy Superman, which is also, well, I guess that was Susanna York that said that. But Gene Hackman was in Superman, so whatever. Superman 2, technically. Sorry, nerds. Anyway, um, so they argue a bit more until Pritchard just ultimately threatens Tom by saying that if he were to do anything that would be contrary to making the Secretary of Defense look good, that he would have to uh, try to, you know, he would have, he would have to deal with it in a way that was probably going to be very uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Basically what he's saying. Exactly. But with crazy eyes. <laughs> yeah, but with crazy Pritchard eyes. Oh, my God. And, I mean, it's like, all right, I'm going to turn on the crazy switch. Yeah. Click, click. Hey. Yeah, he he just ratcheted up the the crazy level. I mean, he to, to like a about an eight and a half. He went to about uh, well, eight and, eight and a half, eight and a half on a normal acting scale, about a six or seven and a half on the Nicolas Cage scale. Right, right. <laughs> so I would say I think he was at about six cages. Yeah, at that point. Okay. <laughs> so we cut to uh, a meeting taking place by uh, the CAA director Marshall and O'Brien, who, as we said before, wasn't buying anything. Yeah. yeah, so uh, their new guy, Farrell, deer in headlights. Some shit's going down over there. And then pulls out a folder like, here's what we know. Right. They, they know a shit ton, apparently. <laughs> well, we don't need a Russian mole. We got plenty of CIA moles in here. Yeah. You know, and so he was like, they could not have given two shits about the financials that were going on. Right. Farrell was clearly not happy with whatever the situation was. He even knows about the outbound calls. Yeah, exactly. Being monitored. Right, exactly. And so he sort of starts putting two and two together because, you know, he knows that Susan was the mistress of either Bryce or Pritchard. Marshall's like, well, it wasn't Pritchard. <laughs> Pritchard's a homosexual. And, he's, and he says it in such a condescendingly 80s way that it made me hate him just a little bit. Like, well, you know, yeah. it explains everything about him because of that. Yeah. I'm like, eh, it's a little cringy, Fred. Yeah. I mean, I know you're of a generation, but, yeah, you know. A little cringy. Yeah. It wasn't, wasn't, wasn't a, not a fan. Cringy moment. It was not a fan. But well, and I mean, just in general, too, they do use the fact that Pritchard's homosexual in a way that is very of its time. Right. And and, and it kind of casts a pall on his character from that point that it's like they hadn't quite gotten past the uppity gay man motivation yeah. for things. Right. And that's kind of where it started tracking from that point after they make the revelation. Yeah. Not that I wasn't already getting the vibe because, well, Patton's an actor and a good one. Yeah. But I, I felt like it didn't need to be spelled out in such a way. Yeah. You know? They could have done it in a way that was a little bit more tasteful and maybe didn't just immediately paint him 
as... Yeah, because it was a label. Once they threw it out there, it became a label. And I think it hurt the suspense, particularly the finale. Yeah, right? for sure. But, I mean, they had to move the movie along. It was a thing. It is what it is. But anyway, O'Brien says that they're searching for Yuri. And Marshall's like, oh, that's bullshit, right? You know, right. You know, we've been looking for this guy forever. Even he doesn't believe that's 100% a thing. Right. Right. But they also together come to the conclusion that since uh, Tom's running the investigation, that He's obviously in that position to take the fall if anything goes bad. Right. Marshall then gets on the phone with Senator Duvall, talk about the Phantom Sub, probably thinking that this is a perfect time to apply pressure, which we then find out pressure is being applied <laughs> later on because we cut right into uh, Bryce's office and the president's like, so uh, what about this uh, <laughs> sub uh, that uh, seems to be really great? Imagine if we actually heard Reagan. Oh, on the- that would have been fantastic. <laughs> I, uh, I just finished reading this book, uh, The Hunt for Red October, and I would like to see us have a submarine like that. You know, that would be fantastic. But I mean, I'm assuming that's who he's talking to to, to, in that world that Reagan was still president as well. But maybe not. Maybe not. But anyway, so the president's getting on there. He's like, I need this shit now. Bryce is like, all the stuff I got going on now are going to give me pressure on the sub. Well, yeah, because they're putting pressure on you because you're dumb. (laughs) Right. Tom is in the office listening to this whole diatribe going through. Phone call goes off. Phone calls for him. He's called back down to the computer center. And Pritchard, who no longer trusts Tom. At all. uh, At all. uh, Goes down with him to find out what's going on. So. The mystery negativity thingy. Oh boy! Now I just this is just, it basically alludes to oh we have AI in 1987. But no, because he clearly it's, says computers can't think. But it's such a double falsehood because, because nobody because, understood what they could do. Right? Because you can't lead a computer that doesn't think down a, a road. Well, and by <laughs> its very definition, I mean. It's literally, he's literally talking about what chat GPT can do right now. But by definition, a computer thinks because it computes things. Right. It takes variables and comes up with solutions. Right. It's literally goes a against the machine. Right. It literally goes against the very definition of what a computer does. Right. <laughs> so they tell them they can't pull anything from the silver nitrates and everything that are still on the Polaroid right. negative, which, by the way, I don't think that's how Polaroids work, but we'll, we'll allow it. Um, <laughs> But says we have this handy dandy supercomputer thingy that we can do where it takes a pixel. This is my favorite part. Oh, it, 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 yeah, because they they try and almost educate the viewer on, on what, what what is happening. What a pixel is. Think of it as the smallest component, like the atom of a picture. <laughs> <laughs> and I look at my cat who's named Pixel. Oh, really? For a completely different reason. Um, and I'm like, see, you are like the smallest atom of a com- of a computer screen. What do, you, what do you think of that? And he was just like, I don't think of nothing. Stop moving. I'm trying to sleep. But yeah, they give you this whole thing about how it can take those pixels and arrange them. And the thing that just makes me laugh is everybody knows what a fucking pixel is now. Right. Right. It's yeah. a thing. Right. But back then, something called Pixels. It's called a pixel, Marty. Uh, Marty, I can't believe. <laughs> Look, Marty, how we need to do is get uh, seven thousand of these pixels together, and we'll have everything we need to build a flux capacitor. Um, but he goes through this process <laughs> where the computer, where the computer is going to take these pixels and arrange them in a way that comes up with something coherent, which, by the way, is a computer thinking. But then he goes on to say that computers don't think. So we have to tell it what to look for in order for it to determine what Which it is. Which is the dumbest 
thing. It really is. And I mean, if you had said it differently, it could have made sense. Like, we have to give it breadcrumbs on where to go to know how to frame what it's looking for, rather than saying, but computers are dumb. (laughs) You don't have to tell them everything, or I can't do nothing. (laughs) You know? Because honestly, that this sort of makes a little sense to me. If you're taking something, you have to tell them, it's a person. Because on that, what you saw on that negative, there was nothing. Right. You had kind of a vague outline that probably was a person. And right. so if you tell it, it looks like a human being, then the computer can at least go, okay, well, these are the parameters we need to find while we're digitizing. But computers can't think. But again, this thing did exactly what ChatGBT does right now in right. 2023. Right. But it's, yeah, but we're talking uh-huh. 40 some odd years in the future. Yeah. yeah. Computers back then could not have even probably accomplished this task. Okay. There was even, a box of three and a half inch floppy disk on this guy's exactly. desk. Just to analyze the pixels that were there right. would have taken months well, and for 12, a 1987 yeah, computer 12 to hours, process. 12 hours. Bullshit. I'm like, it would have taken 12 hours just for it to figure out what it needed to do to look at something. <laughs> figure out what a pixel is. Yeah. Pixel. <laughs> I have to identify what a pixel is since it's not common language in 1987. Right. Maybe they should have had Sean Young do it since she's a robot. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, in Blade Runner, you could take pictures and go, and the resolution would come up and everything yeah. else. And that was only in 2019. So, you know. <laughs> there you go. Anyway, wow. Let's bring this train back into the station. <laughs> yes. So getting this information, Tom's getting super worried now because he knows right. who's on the picture. Right. And he knows that no matter how he spins it, it ain't looking good for him. Nope. Right. So <laughs> in the process of kind of this, this this realization dawning on him, they get the first call that's discovered as to where Susan went to, and it's from Nina. So Farrell's like, I want to go interview her. And Pritch is like, I want to go with you. Right. Because I'm your shadow now, motherfucker. Goddamn right, right he is now. Right. You go nowhere without me, Tom. That's right. That's why you're in the white suit and I'm in the black suit. Because <laughs> there's some imagery going on That's here. right. That's right. Um, so we cut to Pritchard and Tom going to Nina's apartment. And he's in full menace mode, Pritchard, at this point. Oof, yeah. Yeah. And it's all like, and uh, we're just here to talk about things. It's the thing with the things. and. Mm-hmm. Are you a citizen of the United States, Miss Bika? Kind of thing. And just being all sort of syrupy and not very clever at all. No. and Very unsavory. Right. And Tom's trying to think. He's giving her the you don't know who I am eyes the whole time. Right. Right. Um, After they've just disclosed to her that Susan's been murdered. Right. And she's like, well, I know what Susan's been doing with the dude behind you, but I'm going to keep my mouth shut to figure out what the game is here. Right. Right. Because clearly she's been around the block a few times, knows how things work. Right. Well, right. and then she says, can we cut a deal? Right. And, and then you're like, oh, shit. Yeah. The yeah. jig is up. And then and he starts pulling, slowly pulling flowers out of a vase. Like he's ready to hit Pritchard with exactly. it in case shit goes south. Exactly. <laughs> and I'm like, what a subtle piece of work. That's a good little moment. Yeah. And f- fortunately... The way things go, Pritchard is at least tacitly satisfied with what he finds out. Right. But his whole thing seems to have been to go find out if this girl knew anything about Susan and Bryce. 
Right, exactly, because he wants to erase... Any possible connection. Which means that she's about to be eliminated... Exactly. ...if he, if he has his way. By uh, Quato and the dweeb. Right. But she gets out of it. Tom's like, thank you for your cooperation. Good night. <laughs> hint, hint. Hint, hint. <laughs> wink, wink. So then we jump back to the Pentagon, cutting back to the computer room, and Pritchard is asking Hesselman for the names of everyone who started working at the Pentagon within the past two months. Which is really funny that it never dawns on him, or maybe it has already, that maybe this new person that's in the Pentagon is Tom. Right? But the, the whole, like it, there's, like, a, there's a whole conceit in the movie about that. Like yeah. when they come and do the, the walkthrough down in there... He spills coffee. Nobody's questioning why he's, he's why he's conveniently exiting right. the room that they're about to search. Even Major Donovan is laughing. He's like, Haha, what a rookie with the coffee <laughs> yeah. on his pants. Right. Nobody's stopping to think, why is this guy leaving when they're coming into the office? Right. Right. So that whole conceit goes through, and it's just a way to get Costner out of a room. Yeah. Right? Yeah. The whole time. But in the meantime, we have well, okay. more, more, more of what... What Ben terms bullshit science, saying they've pinned down the pollutants in Susan's stomach to determine where she was. <laughs> well, here's the thing. It feels so pinpoint accurate. I think I think yes. that's my problem is is it feels way too acute. Like you it's, can, it's it's exposition. You can find a region, but like to acutely pin it down feels it probably really... would have it probably would have felt better if they'd said something like something in the water. Indicates yeah. that it comes from the reservoir off the Chesapeake Bay or something like that. Yeah. Or something. If, or I think honestly, if they would have just painted it that way, I wouldn't have had such an issue with it. Here's what I think. If I was writing this Jason, movie Jason, what now, do you think? If I was writing this movie right now, <laughs> I, don't, I think the stomach contents are important to a degree. I would have had them going, we picked up some mud samples from the shoes she was wearing because she was still wearing the same clothes that they came back from Annapolis in. Yeah. Right? So go, they would have go, tested, they would have analyzed all of her clothing for go fibers. Go Beverly Hills Cop 2 on it. Exactly. That mud is from the oil fields over there. Exactly. <laughs> because that there could have been dirt that was endemic to the area. Yeah. There could have been, and I mean, I don't know what kind of pollutants that they have that could have nailed them down to Annapolis. But I'm just saying, there are other scientific methods that were current at the time that probably would have lent themselves. That would have felt maybe slightly more legit. Right. Because- if they have the ability to analyze stomach contents, they were doing a full autopsy. They must have had, wherever they sent her to, full investigative facilities. They would have run through all the fiber checks and everything, too, to see if there was Bryce's hair or Farrell's hair. I mean, this is the things that they do. They're very edited in yeah. the process. Yeah. So I can see why it seems phony, because what is specific to Annapolis that they could find in her stomach? Essentially, it felt like they dumbed it down, but then made it very specific. So... Hollywood. Hollywood. Well, we then do a hard cut to Tom uh, stressing out in his office when one of the investigators comes in looking for Donovan. He's like, we found this jewelry box that wasn't turned in with the regular evidence because I'm Mr. Chain of Evidence guy. <laughs> right. The, the same guy just not doing a very good job. Nope. nope. And Tom's like, well, let me take a look at that because he knows what that box is. Uh-huh. And he's like, you know what? I'll get this to Donovan. And Mr. Chain of uh, Custody guy's like, all right. <laughs> right. I don't see anything wrong with that. No, 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 no. You're because you're the good guy, clearly. <laughs> you're in white. That's right. All right. Here you go, sir. So we then come to uh, Duval in Bryce's office, and he's putting the full court press on Bryce because Marshall's told him what he thinks is going on. Yeah. And he really wants to get that phantom sub. That's right. I mean, why all senators suddenly <laughs> from the South? I don't know, but every one of them has a slight affectation. <laughs> and he says that 
he's aware of the uh, the current investigation that going out or that's happening. Right. So now their cover's blown on that. Sure. He points out that it's circumventing everything to get there and he's not happy about the whole thing and the preacher's like eh we're not 100% committed in our position right now right. senator you know basically saying okay we get it if it gets you off of our ass we'll give you the damn phantom sub right very and, smooth talker oh yeah 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 gets him out the office and then Bryce suddenly becomes Bryce again for like a minute and goes what the fuck are you doing man <laughs> yeah he throws the throws, he, he the, throws the file out of the as top soon as, secret file right as soon as Duvall is out of the office, office chucks it over at Pritchard's head there's just top secret documents everywhere everywhere and I like how he's in the chair pouting reading the top secret documents <laughs> before he does it Pritchard's like look we have to get him off the scent. It doesn't mean we have to do anything now. Right. But it's getting him off. We'll make him happy. We'll placate him. And then he asks him, if, do you know who Nina is? And Bryce's like, I don't know who Nina is at all. Right? Right. And Pritchard's like, well, she knows you. Well, she knows you. So that's a situation we're going to have to deal with, which is what he's implying. Right. And so we then uh, cut to Tom, who has his little ensign running around there. <laughs> this tells him, you know, we need to take this jewelry box to the CIA, find out the information on it. Why the CIA? I'm, I'm a little. I mean, could just be that he's throwing a line to the CIA to be, be like, it. like, hey, I'm still investigating some weird shit. You may want to lend an ear. That's to gotta that. be it That's to keep them in the loop in a way that he wasn't able to do with Pritchard around. Right. But basically, he wants to find out where the box comes from. Because so, he's thinking this might be a little minefield that he can lay out to either delay things or put the focus back on Bryce. Right. So. He sends off Ensign Expendable. Um, <laughs> Fox, I believe it is. Yeah, okay, that's that's fair. Uh, Ensign, the other guy in the white suits, we know he's a good guy. That's right. Meanwhile, Pritchard has put the two Contra assassin goons in motion, and goofy motion at that, I might say. Oh, boy. <laughs> Tom sees it and immediately gr starts grilling Pritchard and then runs off knowing that they're going to go kill Nina. Right. So then we get, <laughs> well, I won't say that it's a good chase scene, but I won't say that it's a bad chase scene. It's, what it's, I will say is that I'm pretty sure this is where Tom Cruise got the idea for running throughout half of his movies. Because from this point on, it seems like all Kevin Costner is doing is running. There's a lot of running. And Kevin Costner runs kind of goofy himself. He does. Just a little bit. I mean, he's no Tom Cruise. He's no Tom Cruise. I'll say this. He's certainly better than Vampire Guy. Oh, um, anyway, so Tom runs into the motor pool, tells him he needs a car. The guy's like, we got no cars. He's like, well, I'll take this one you got on the lift. He's like, but something's broken. on it. He's like, I don't care. <laughs> he literally drives it off, off of the, the lift, lift. <laughs> right? Drops the bumper, goes out the wrong direction, nearly runs into another car, smashes the side of the car into the wall. I'm just like, this guy has zero, zero consideration for government property. That's what a right. dick. <laughs> So then we get what's sort of a car chase, but not really a car chase. Then he's just trying to catch up to right. where they're at. And then he catches up. He's like, hi. Uh, yeah. Hi. <laughs> I see you guys. Hi. <laughs> then he floors it, cuts them off. They crash into one another. And then it's a foot race. Yeah. Across some highway. Well, what's interesting is then they start chasing him as opposed to a foot race to make it to. Right. Well, that was the whole point. He was trying to distract them, yeah. but it didn't make any sense for them to chase him. Although, let's face it, they all would have been running to the same direction. Right. Well, in, in the end, they just get him. Right. They don't get Nina. Right. So it's it's a little bit of a head scratcher, the fact that it isn't this race to where Nina is. It's just they're now following him. Right. 
Well, like you said, they're all going to the same place. They might as well chase each other in the same direction, right? <laughs> right. It's like uh, spy movie carpooling. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. So, <laughs> so there's a foot chase. Tom jumps off of a tree that's significantly higher than the <laughs> the balcony that Susan fell off of and only gets his uniform dirty. Right. And He's a fine. oof. He gets and a oof. oof. <laughs> right. The other two goons are like, oh, we can't do that. We might die by breaking our neck. Yeah, so they, they have to go even, the long way. I know, right? They didn't even, they're like, oh, I'm not doing that. <laughs> That's crazy. That's, that's, that's insanity. <laughs> they still manage to catch up to him as he's going across. And then Coster does a Starsky and Hutch across the uh, hood of a car. Yeah, yeah. And according to the trivia, he did that stunt himself. And the insurance company went to Donaldson and said, you will not do that again. Coster really? wanted to do all of his own stunts, apparently. I wonder if he... Well, I mean, he... It looks like he did the slide down the uh, escalator. Oh, he, he thing, did the too. he did the ball bumper down the escalator for sure. Yeah, the only, I think the only thing he didn't really do. He, I don't think he did all of the ship stuff, and I don't think that was him on the tree. Okay, but I mean, most of the most of the stuff that was in there was him. Yeah. So again, I really feel like Tom Cruise is trying to take some of <laughs> Kevin Costner is my hero. He wears Kevin Costner uh, pajamas. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. But they eventually end up running to the mall that Nina works in. That was so strange that the after he evades them and gets on the subway. Oh, yeah. The subway takes him right to the mall. Right to the mall. After getting his balls bumped. Right. Because this was the only escalator in cinematic history <laughs> that actually had the bumpers to keep you from sliding down it. Right. And he still slid down them. Yeah. So way to go, Tom. Good You're really job, dedicated Tom. to saving Nina. That's right. <laughs> There's a level of ridiculousness about it. Yeah. Well, this whole chase is silly. Yeah. And then once it gets to the mall, after Tom tells Nina to get lost, literally, and the goons come for him in the mall, and the short-lived fight in the mall right. is so silly. He goes into the ultimate 80s mall. Right. It's- that looked like it was being filmed during the holidays, <laughs> but there was lots of brick and brass yes. in this mall. <laughs> Way more screen accurate than... a. Uh- well, because it was the 80s. Right. But way more screen accurate than uh, Stranger Things mall. Right. And, and Stranger Things was close. It was close, but, but this was truly this a was, real mall. Oh, my God. It was terrible. <laughs> and yeah, so and he goes and gets Nina, gets her out of the store, tells her to run, Luke, run. And and <laughs> the funny thing is, during the fight scene, somehow Costner ends up in, oh, in, in Dracula's is, lap. His, his face is buried in that guy's crotch. Crotch, right? <laughs> My wife, who was on her phone, looks up and goes, what is happening here? <laughs> I'm like, it was a fight scene. Okay. <laughs> but Quato goes over with the gun and he's like, I think we need to go back to the office. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, Tom, we need to go debrief in the office. Open your mind, <laughs> So we cut back to Pritchard walking in as Thomas putting on uniform number two, I think, at this point. I believe it's two now. Number yeah. two. We see the copious number of uniforms in his office in the Pentagon. But he looks all nice and shiny. Pritchard's pissed off, clearly. Farrell says he doesn't believe there's a Yuri. He says that Pritchard would just have him killed anyway, because that's what these goons are clearly here to do. Right. So... And that's when we get that weird line from Pritchard where he's like, I am tired of weakness. And right. he, this is for me, this is when he goes full just cuckoo. Just right. dives into the full just I'm psycho. <laughs> right. I, I'm in I'm in full crazy swing now. Yeah. And there's no coming back from it. Right. So Tom's like, you know what? I quit. I quit. And he's like, I won't let you resign. And basically just says, 
you're going to have to come around and do what I want you to do because you got no options. Yeah, it's it's a really weird thing where he's like, it's this yells at him, but then still tries to keep him part of the gang. It's 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 weird. It's because for some reason he has this attachment to Tom. Yeah. That's similar to the one that he has to Bryce. Right. And maybe it's because he was in love with Tom. Right. You know, I don't know. But there's something that he keeps wanting to see the best in Tom and to get Tom to come around. And maybe it's just him trying to be his own little Bryce. He wants to have that power under the things that are directly under him. Right. And he wants to reel in Tom because it's important that Tom do what he wants because he respects Tom in a certain degree. Right. But yeah, he's just gone full off the truck right there. It's, and we get pretty much crazy Pritchard from this point on. Right. So Farrell walks out into another office. Into another lady's office, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, just some random... Some random uh, Pentagon uh, secretary or something yeah, like that. just like, give me your phone. Getting ready to drink some tea. <laughs> and she's like, better watch out. If you're calling your girlfriend, better watch out. You never know who's listening. He's like, once again, I don't care, <laughs> right? Right. And then calls, gets a hold of Fox. Fox tells him that it's basically Moroccan and now he has what he needs to know where it came from and some other things like that. Funny, he takes a sip of her tea. Yeah, and he's like, it's like Ugh. Ugh. Puts it back down. But he walks over to Hesselman's office. And you have to know that like this photo is being digitized on every television in the in, in the building. Yeah. Right. And I think they made the explanation that maybe somebody would see something as the work was going. Sure. But the whole thing is a blurry picture with a green vertical line and a green horizontal line. Right. Green vertical <laughs> line, green horizontal line. It looks like the predator looking at somebody with its face mask off. You know, it's just like <laughs> But anyway, he goes to Hesselman's office and he asks Hesselman if there's a way to access the office of Protocol's computer to find out about gifts from foreign people. And Hesselman's like, well, yeah, but they're closed. And he's like, yeah, but you're like clearly dressed like a hacker. Um, so you can clearly do this, could right? You, could you hack into it and find out for me? And he's like, well, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, for you, Tom. I can interface. I can interface. I think it's funny, too, that he's like, well, it's closed. Things that would never happen now. Right. A computer database being closed. Right. It would be maybe closed off. Right. But the department's not closed. <laughs> right. The computer is running 24-7. Right. Right. So Tom's happy. He manipulated him into getting what he wants. Then he goes back to Pritchard's office with a, this uh, is, a fake apology, really. Yeah, this is really strange. I don't know if he's just trying to buy himself time. I think that's what it is. I think he's trying to buy himself time and doesn't want to have Pritchard on him with the goons 24-7 at this point. Yeah. So he goes in kind of conciliatory apologizes uh, for, you know, being rude, says he understands, we'll, we'll see this thing through, and placates Pritchard to a degree. Pritchard's like, well, well, we're going to do great things together. And, right. And, and, he, and he goes, this is a coster, but it's a quiet coster. Let's take care of this one thing first. Yeah. And it's it's just, a, it's, it's a subtle coster moment, but it's one of his things. <laughs> the finger goes up, and he kind of pushing back with the finger up going, let's do the thing that we need to do first. So we, we kick over to a point where we see the picture is starting to take the shape of a person. And Tom talks to Sam at his office to tell him, quite honestly, dude, I'm the guy in the picture. Yeah. And he starts telling him there's some sort of cover-up, but he needs more time to figure out what's happening and to prove we really did it. Is there a way he can slow down the process? And at this point in time, Hesselman's getting a little... Leery. little leery of all the favors that he's asking for. But I do like how he's like... I didn't kill her. And Sam's like, 
Well, of course you didn't kill her. I mean, white. <laughs> You're wearing white. <laughs> white. And you said you were in love with her. Right. So clearly you didn't do that. So dreams and rainbows. Exactly. It's the 80s, man. You say what you say, you mean what you mean. But he, he convinces Sam to slow the process down. Sam then goes to 80s nerdy geek number two. Right. Orders him to do some sort of a... What did he call it? A Frasian blur or something like that? Yeah. I'm sure it was a legitimate term. At the time. For what they were doing. Um, sure. But the guy's like, well, that's completely unnecessary. Just do it, damn it! Everybody's <laughs> all like, oh, Sam's mad. He never gets mad. He's the guy that's always cool and even-tempered and takes must, a joke. Must have had a fight with his wife while he was fishing or something. Or <laughs> his best friend that or his best friend randomly just... <laughs> used to work with him. I don't know. <laughs> but meanwhile, the goons, who are now basically camped out wherever Tom is at, uh, start getting noisy about what he's up to. And notice that he keeps looking at the printout, which is a, basically a printout of everything from the Office of Protocol. Right. He's waiting for the jewelry box to show, show up, up. <laughs> which um, I love that they have to wait for this dot matrix printer yeah. <laughs> to eventually show the one thing that he needs. Right. So Tom goes off out of the office and the two goons are following him. And eventually <laughs> we get to the bathroom. I'd rather do this myself. You can listen if you want to. <laughs> That's a great line. <laughs> But, you know, we're getting in here. The tension is mounting because then we see the guy who rented the boat to Tom and Susan enter the building to uh, basically identify the guy. Right. Right. Because at this point, they've been, now that they know that they were in the Annapolis area, they start tracking down other things and they're starting to put two and two together. As Tom's leaving the bathroom, he sees this guy and narrowly ducks out of the way. This is an interesting little moment because you don't really, this makes no sense until you get to the very end. This next thing. At least, I don't know who else he would be calling. Unless he's calling Ensign. Right. But, the, no, the indication that he had was not that. And this was, I think, your your hook and line that something else was going on with Tom. Yeah. That you're not aware of. Because he goes into the phone booth, phone booth kids, um, <laughs> makes a phone call to somebody that he doesn't identify, say he's stuck in the Pentagon and he can't leave. And then he needs to talk to somebody that, as soon as he can. Yeah, that he'll get there to talk to somebody as soon as he can. The thing I don't like about this scene and the ensuing nonsense that comes after it is that the fisherman dude sees Tom, identifies Tom, but can't describe to the dot to the, the basic thing. He's wearing a white uniform. Right. You literally just saw him. You don't have to describe that he looks like Kevin Costner. You don't <laughs> have to give me this whole bullshit about was he white or black? Uh, yeah. Was he this, that? I'm telling you, he was average. Right. If you had said he was in a white uniform, you could have eliminated probably three-fourths of the staff at the Pentagon. Right. And just had naval personnel walk past yep. this person. Yep. God, that made me so mad. <laughs> You're right. You can't. You don't have to identify what he looks like. You just need to identify the uniform, of which he could have gone, well, he was dressed like that. Right. And then they just round them all up. They ran them all up in the place where and Sam's going to get shot, <laughs> and we're good to go. But no, that's not what happens. So Farrell makes the phone call. Uh, after narrowly ducking away from being seen, Tom makes his way over to Bryce's office where Donovan is. And to keep up appearances, he orders Donovan to close off all the exits and hold the witness. Because now there's, at this point, everybody generally now believes that Yuri is in the building. Right. I'm not really sure how we get to that conclusion. I'm sure there's something in it that I didn't really realize. Well, because he said, oh, I, there he is. Oh, yeah, because he pointed. That's right. Duh. Oh, my God. He <laughs> said this whole diatribe on that stupid thing, and I didn't put two and two together on that. <laughs> Because I guess in my brain, man, I've watched this movie a lot. I guess in my brain, I kept thinking that they brought him in because they knew he was there. Right. 
rather than just randomly bringing them in to bring them in, which is what they clearly did before I identify them. And that's why I don't write movies, ladies and gentlemen. I just watch them. <laughs> Anyways. And so with that, we roll into Act 3. Okay. Strap in, people. The final countdown. <laughs> so uh, then we see Pritchard then suggests, for the purposes of avoiding the press, to go room by room with the witnesses until they find Yuri. And Pritchard tells Donovan to have all the officers carry a sidearm, uh, but not Farrell, because I know you didn't. It, that was such a weird moment there where he's like, does he already know? I think he's just like, I don't want Farrell to carry a gun because Farrell figures something out and then he's armed. Right. Right. Exactly. So <laughs> so then the bellhop from the hotel arrives in uniform as yep. a bellhop. But like I said, that was the only <laughs> outfit he had for the movie. Right. So he's there now to identify as well. And... Pharrell still sort of keeping up appearances is like, well, great, that'll cut our time in two. And we'll just send them through as well. So then they send a different party with the bellhop through. So then they do this. They they literally start going room by room, which I kind of think is silly as hell because the Pentagon is massive. Yeah, it's the largest office building in the world. Right. So it's like, this This is dumb. It, but anyway. It, it is dumb. It would literally take like three days to, well, to cover. Well, because even Bryce comes up with the thing, well, why don't we just put these people at the exits right. and let them watch? It's like, well... You know, newspapers and TV, you right. know, Pritchard's like, what's the issue over here? And it would seem dumb to me because at the end of the day- They if, found out anyway. Well, they, they found out anyway, but you could have been like, and it was for a gigantic spy thing that we were able to uncover through our own blah, 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 right, blah. Exactly. They could, have, they could have spun it in a good way, but- Exactly. Suspense. <laughs> so then, as all this is happening, we see Tom at the printer and the jewelry box still hasn't printed out. And then they cut- and he's in Bryce's office saying that they should put the witnesses at the mall entrance of the Pentagon and let everybody walk past them. And so at this point, the, the news agencies have taken notice to the situation and are outside. So then they let everyone out. And of course, they don't find him. And at that point, Donovan says to go room by room again now that the majority of the people are gone. Right. So back in the computer room, we want Sam to slow down the picture further. And he finally breaks and he tells him that Bryce is the killer and that he gave Susan the jewelry box. And from there, he convinces Sam to enter the jewelry box into the office as a protocol database because apparently it's either not there or maybe if he puts it in again, it'll come up faster, something to that effect. So he convinces him to, to do this and this will also stop the search and keep them from killing him. So Sam being still somewhat sympathetic for his friend, he, he does right. it, but he looks very, very stressed and right. you start wondering... What is Sam going to do next? Right. So just then, the search party makes its way to the computer room. And then that's when we get the thing that both me and Jason hate, which is Tom accidentally spilling coffee on his uniform to make it look like an excuse to get out of there. Right. And, and, and change his uniform And nobody again. questions that. And nobody questions it whatsoever. It's like, oh, <laughs> look at the funny guy. He spilled coffee on him. <laughs> We're doing yeah, it like Don- Donovan's even like, <laughs> rookie. <laughs> right. In no way does this seem convenient at all. Right. So then we cut to Sam and he calls Pritchard saying he doesn't know if Farrell knows what he's doing, and he agrees to meet Pritchard. So meanwhile, while that's happening, Tom then hides in the overhead air duct in his office as the search party is making their way to his office. So he hides up there. Nobody bothers to uh, check to see... Well, if the air duct is... Well, I guess they haven't gotten to that point yet. Well, no, They're just trying to make it through the rooms at this point. White uniforms. Good guy. White uniform, good guy. That's Apparently, that's the lesson I've learned and from And everybody movie. realizes that because they went into the office, there really was no way 
<laughs> so clearly there was nobody in there. <laughs> exactly. I just loved the bellhop with this with this uniform still on. Like he couldn't. He didn't even have time to change. Nope. They threw him in a car and sent him on his way. <laughs> so. Then we cut to this basketball court that's inside the Pentagon, and Sam's right there in the middle of it with Pritchard, and Sam spills the beans to Pritchard, who then basically just goes, well, thank you, and turns around and point blank shoots Three him. times! Three times! Not worried about gunshots at all. No, why would anybody Clearly take- Clearly the gymnasium's in the basement. Right, nobody would take notice to that. No, no. Not at all. In the Pentagon. In the Pentagon. <laughs> How did he get a gun in the Pentagon anyway? Right. No one knows for sure. <laughs> so- Then we see Tom back in the computer room and finally finds the printout of the jewelry box. But just as he does this, he looks up and the goon squad is now descending on him. He's like, oh shit. So he throws this chair through. And I've never understood this in this set. In the computer room set, I don't understand the window that he throws the chair through to get out. Like, I don't know where that goes. It just didn't look like it went anywhere. Well, I think it was just it was just a hallway that was out there. I guess so. And yeah. it was the closest thing for him to hop out. I do like how an alarm went off when, when he, he did it. When he broke the window. When he broke the window, though, yeah. <laughs> so he throws the chair through the window and escapes through that way, and the two guys run after him, and vampire guy has just the run. <laughs> That's when we get the best display of the silly run that oh, he has I know. got. It's just it yeah. It's, it's hilarious. It's, <laughs> All sorts of funny. Also, the chase music is so bad. Anyway, so anyway, they're they're chasing him. They're chasing him. They get to the stairwell, and Tom finds a fire extinguisher, and he hides behind a wall. And as Quato comes around the corner, he just bam, bam, nails Quato. Just knocks his ass out with the with the fire extinguisher. Tries to hit the vampire guy, but misses. And he has a straight Tree razor, razor right? which seems like an odd weapon of choice for, yeah, a, yeah, yeah, yeah. for a Contra assassin goon character. Maybe he's trying to be a Bond villain with a very specific set of skills. Maybe there's something about Contra people that we don't know about. I don't know. Yeah. But I kept thinking, hmm, that is an odd weapon of choice for yeah. a special forces guy. Yeah. Nonetheless, it is very visually arresting. Absolutely. To be, because anytime anybody sees somebody get cut with a straight razor, it's very... It's very visceral. Yeah, very much so. So, but he gets away and straight razor guy chases Costner down the hallway, another hallway, and he finally makes it all the way back to Bryce's office and he yells at the guard that's guarding Bryce's office. He's like, arrest this man! And the... I am your superior officer and I am ordering you to arrest this man! Right, exactly. And the Marine's like, yep. <laughs> yeah, and then... The Contra guy is trying to argue his point, but <laughs> gets swiftly gets kicked in the nuts by Costner. Remember those balls that were so gently cradling me earlier in the mall? <laughs> Fuck you. That is right. So from there, Tom barges into Bryce's office, past the, the office ladies. To, into, you can't go in there. He's all like, <laughs> yeah, I can. Yeah. Just barges right in. And uh, Bryce is just like, "What? Are you, how are you in here? You know, what are you doing in here? And Tom's immediately like, you're not looking for a Russian spy. You're looking for somebody who knows Susan was your mistress. And at this point, Bryce just sort of plays dumb and tries to deny it. But then Tom brings up the jewelry box. And then as all this is happening, uh, Donovan barges in to make sure Bryce was okay because of all the yelling that's going on, all the commotion. So at that point, Donovan goes, well, he's definitely in the building because someone's just been murdered. Sam Hesselman's just been shot. And then as soon as all that happens, then Pritchard comes in right afterwards. Right. And he just tells Donovan, well, go back and continue the search. Obviously, this is of utmost importance, you know. So Tom accuses Pritchard of sicking the goons on Sam because he doesn't know that 
Pritchard did it himself. Right. And then Pritchard tells Bryce that Tom is the man that saw him at Susan's house. This is when Pritchard is ultra creepy and psycho, and he's mm-hmm. like, well... If Tom is the <laughs> is the man who saw Susan, is, then he, is, must is, is, Yuri. he must be Yuri. You know, and if he's Yuri, he must be the murderer, or vice right. ver- vice versa. You get the idea. So Pritchard pulls out a gun, and then we get the most awkward three way struggle I've ever seen in right. this office, where they're just kind of pushing back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and then it sort of breaks, and Pritchard's like, "You have no idea what powerful men can do," and ah, and then that's when yeah, Bryce has this epiphany, and he's like, well, "Wait a minute, we can spin this a different way now," because Pritchard is clearly out of control, right? And so Bryce starts reframing the story to Tom as if Pritchard, being homosexual, was jealous whenever Bryce was with Susan. And so Pritchard was actually Susan's killer. And then at that point, Bryce starts practically begging Tom to help him frame the story that way. Right. And as he's begging him against the wall, literally, he's got him pinned up against the wall. Suddenly, Pritchard yells out or something, and they both... Turn to look at Pritchard, and Pritchard blows his brains blows out. his brains out. So that happens. And then <laughs> as soon as the gun goes off and he falls to the ground, Donovan bursts in. And with that, Bryce exclaims that the search is over, essentially saying that Pritchard was Yuri. Bryce continues to ask for Tom's word in going along with the story. Uh, and <laughs> Tom just balls out. I'm done. Tom's just like, I'm out of here. I'm done. And he just leaves, doesn't say anything, doesn't confirm anything. And just as he's walking out, Ensign Fox shows back up and Tom gives him the now bloodied printout with the jewelry box on it. And he writes in big, ugly chicken scratch, Marshall CIA. And he's like, well, take this to him. I don't care if you have to wake him up. And then from there, we cut to the computer room. And of course, at this point, the magic computer has now created the picture perfectly of of Tom in it. That's right. So then we cut and it's nighttime and and we see Farrell driving at night um, and it's raining and then and then it quickly cuts to daybreak where he's sitting in the cemetery next to Susan's grave. Long comes Cupbreaker. There cup, he is. Cupbreaker and the other guy. Cupbreaker and the other guy. And they arrive to bring him in for interrogation. They're like, a lot of people are looking for you. And he's like, well. Aren't you the smart ones? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so then we're once again back in the interrogation room where we started this movie. And they're interrogating him. And Tom gets super pissed and starts screaming at the mirror. And suddenly the mirror door opens. And hey. Hey, it's the vaguely middle European sounding uh, apartment manager. <laughs> right. Speaking Speaking in Russian. That's right. And then, of course, Tom responds back in perfect Russian. Right. Just kind of going back and forth. And hey, guess what? He was the mole the whole Whole time. time. So at that point, the manager tells him that he must go back to Russia now. But Tom says, well, you can't make me go. I don't want to go. And it's clear that it just seems like Tom is done with this whole business. He just just wants nothing to do with any of it now. And he just starts walking out and the heavies try and stop him, but the apartment manager guy is like, no, let him go. Where else is he going to go? He'll be back. He'll be back. Exactly. He's got no way out. No way out. (laughs) And that, my friends, is the end of No Way Out. Okay, so before we go, my theory was that Bryce and Pritchard were lovers the whole time. I could see that. There is a specific scene where he's talking about this girl who does things for me that I can't believe. It's like it's the only other thing worth living for. So Almost he, like he's implying that Pritchard is the other, other thing? Correct. Ah. And particularly at the end, there's. it feels like it's more than him just acknowledging that he's 
gay, it feels like there's an acknowledgement of another level of this relationship. Which then when you start thinking about everything, the way he treats him and everything else. Yeah. Pritchard's just another Susan that serves a different part of his ego. So that's my theory. I don't know. I couldn't find anything that supported it anywhere. But I just felt like... It's plausible When for you sure. look at that, given the caliber of the two actors, yeah. I felt like there was that undercurrent that I could see after, especially the second time I watched it. And it does feel plausible, too, that, that Pritchard could essentially have maybe had like a college crush on Tom. On Tom. And so maybe that's why he was so patient with Tom and didn't just mm-hmm. off him earlier. Exactly. Because it would have made more sense. Exactly. And so that's why he kind of loses his mind at the very end and then just ends yeah. up offing himself. Cause, yeah, because the guy that he was in love with isn't on his side. The guy that he's currently in love with isn't on his side. And they're both plotting against him and his brain just short circuits and he has to shoot his brain to reboot it. Right. I don't know. Yeah. So uh, no way out. Overall, I mean, a really, really good movie. A very, like, A very good thriller. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, again... This movie would be almost a classic for me if the soundtrack was better. Right. Like that music is just so jarring in a, in a couple spots that are just takes me completely out of the movie. I'm like, oh, God, this music is so dumb. Yeah. But, and and this, like I said, this movie could be filmed anywhere, anytime. Yeah. You could remake it easily anywhere, anytime. And it's still a good, solid movie. Just needs a better soundtrack. Just needs a better soundtrack. But performances, good all around. Oh, yeah. But uh, what do you think of it, tens of listeners? Did you watch it? Did you watch it? That Did is your homework. That's right. When we put these things out, it's, it's your homework. I mean, the anticipation is you're <laughs> going to have at least seen it, if not watched it directly. That's right. But we're always looking for listener interaction. So please get in touch. Let us know what you thought about the movie, what you thought about our analysis of the movie. Either one. I don't care. <laughs> Just reach out. That's right. Our email is uh, cicdeaddrop at gmail.com. On Instagram, it's Central Intelligence Cinema, separated by underscores, which is also the same thing as threads. <sighs> the socials are driving me crazy, Jason. You know the problem uh, with living in this technological age is? Huh? There's no way out. <laughs> Indeed. On Twitter, it's at CIC Spy Pod. I will list the links to Blue Sky and Facebook as well. They will all be at the bottom of the show description of this very episode. And also, hey, if you're enjoying the podcast, we would love it if you would choose to help us out by giving us a glowing five-star review on either Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so that our show gets seen faster. Please and thank you. That's right. Please and thank you. But uh, pretty good stuff. Any last thoughts? I think we have said all that there is to say. That's right. Well, we do have a way out. With that, I'm Ben. And I'm Jason. And the CIC will return with more missions, more martinis, and more mayhem.